Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Hello and welcome to episode four of Driving Time. Uh, I am your host, Tiny Wrist Tom, and joining me is T-San as my co-host. How are you, T-San? Hello, hello. I'm well. I'm late, so I apologize for the third time, but for the first time for our listeners, uh, especially to Jamie. So completely forgot about it, shit going on at work, but all good. Happy to be here now, just about to start drinking, so life's good. And as you heard, joining us today is Jamie. Um... I'm not gonna. I'm not even gonna bother try pronouncing your last name. Uh, Allardyce. Yeah. Allardyce. Okay. Yeah, but you couldn't do it in the accent, right? So don't bother. <laughs> so Jamie, what is your background? Where are you, where are you from? Uh, where are you living? What are you doing? Without giving too much away. Yeah. And uh, and how do you know that retrobate Rob over there in Perth? So uh, I've I've been here in uh, Perth for about ten years, um, and previous to that, I was. Um, uh, yeah, Scottish background, Glaswegian. So, um, yeah, I mean, over here in the West, lifestyle's fantastic. So uh, we came for a couple of years and decided to stay. Yeah. And, uh, Ten years later, you look back and think, uh, long time's passed, yeah? So, and how do I know Rob? Well, Rob and I do uh, Red Bar West Australia together along with uh, another friend of ours, okay. Andy. Um, Very good. Which has been quite successful this year, or last year. So mm. we're looking forward to a big year with that. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, welcome. And uh, certainly not the first guy I've heard uh, who's landed in Perth and from either GB or, or South Africa and decided to stay. No, absolutely. It's it's unbeatable. Yeah. I travel interstate, under normal circumstances, I travel interstate a lot. Right. And I'm still always very happy when I come back to Perth. Yeah. <laughs> and generally, what do you do for work, Jamie? Uh, I'm in logistics and supply chain projects mainly, so oil and gas, mining. Okay, where uh, the money is. Yeah, well, I try and stay where the money is and uh, fund the, the, the watch and car and motorcycle habit. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I, I think uh, most of the big oil and gas projects over the last 10 years, I've been involved in the supply chain and the mobilization of all the equipment and then the, the setup and the construction and, 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 and that type of thing. And I guess it wouldn't be unusual for people in that industry uh, because of the type of, the, of work that they do, when they do it, how long they have to do it for, and how well they get paid, they're probably into cars and bikes, and possibly watches. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of disposable income over here, yeah. and uh, certainly uh, lots of oil and gas and uh, fly in fly out workers who, you know, they've got two weeks or three weeks on site, and then two weeks back here, and they've got plenty of time on their hands to, you know, whether it be boats. Bikes, yeah. cars, to, to, jet to skis. Yeah, yeah. Jet ski. well, yeah, you've got to have the token jet ski. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think that they've got the, the money, they've got the time, and, and I think uh, that keeps the prices high, I suppose, over here. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of that, and, and it's been great with Red Bar because we've been able to bring a lot of the enthusiasts that are probably getting okay. into the hobby, but yeah. don't have, you know, don't have a network. We've been able yeah. to bring them together, which is, is it's been surprising how many people have joined up with us and got involved. Well, it, it'd also be interesting because I assume 
unlike maybe a Sydney or a Melbourne, they're not all bankers or uh, lawyers. Yeah, I mean, every everybody here knows each other as well, so therefore, uh, well, that's an exaggeration, but yeah. therefore, it's quite it's quite easy to bring people together in that way. And cool. then, uh, yeah, I mean, most a lot of the members are oil and gas guys or or mining guys, and rather than the the, the bankers and lawyers. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. I used to, when I was young, I worked in Sydney and I couldn't believe, when I saw, you know, a number of really nice cars, I just wonder what do people do to earn that kind of money? And um, and then I remember going on a holiday still when I was relatively young up to some relos up in um, Queensland or could be Queensland, could be New South Wales, depending on which relos and when. But we'd go to a, a different, it was a different type of holiday. We'd be in a camping ground. But there'd be, I'd be surrounded by people who had like, you know, these massive cars, massive caravans, a couple of jet skis, a boat, uh, like a portable fridge they brought along, like this tow on, tow the, you know, so they, sitting around me in this caravan park was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they certainly weren't uh, city slickers. They certainly weren't bankers or uh, or lawyers. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's Boil, good. Boiler, boiler makers or welders or something. Like <laughs> absolutely. <that>. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The trades for sure. Yeah. Anyway, we're welcome. And sorry, Tom, for hijacking. No, all good. Yeah. We'll move on to the wrist and drink check. Um, Jamie, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. So drinks-wise, uh, I just got back from work, so I'm just having a Nansahi beer. Um, and uh, watch-wise, I'm wearing my uh, Bulgari uh, Octo, which is the Octo Simple, which is the, the slightly older version before the in-house movement. Oh. Uh, stainless steel with the black black dial. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm very much in love with this piece, so I do wear it quite a lot. Is that the slightly thicker one? Slightly Jamie? thicker. We were just yeah. discussing that before. It's about. I like that one. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's. I think they're underappreciated. Yeah. And yeah. It's about uh, 10, 10 mil uh, thick, so it's, it's it's not that thick, but it's certainly thicker than the Finissimo. And yeah, um, yeah. It's also. 40, I think it's 41 mil. So will... I think it's more, I think it's more, I mean, I love the new design. I think it's very funky, very funky, mm. but I think this one's closer to a, to a Genta design. Um, yeah. Just because of that height and the layers. Uh, and I guess it's a little bit more simple, but, um, and I also feel for my wrist, this, that your one looks better on it than the new one. I think yeah. the new one looks great on a quite a thick wrist because it because it, it does you know it's it, it becomes part of your wrist. Whereas I need a watch to have a little bit of its own presence as okay. well on my yeah. wrist. Yeah, it wears quite. I would say it wears quite large for its size, but it's that simplicity. It doesn't have the small seconds. Yeah. Um, uh, you know the, the the minimalism, the simplicity, the beautiful pure design. Yeah. And then, uh, I sound like I'm selling this watch, right? But oh, yeah. Uh, oh, no, you're not. Good. <laughs> you're it's, selling it to drive all the prices up for it. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's just uh, quite masculine, although, and I think that's the challenge with a piece like that. Sometimes it can look a little bit maybe like costume jewelry or, 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 or feminine, but yeah. because of the size and the simplicity, I feel it does look quite masculine. And I'm quite a big guy, so I like something larger. So. Yeah. 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 No, it's a very cool watch. I like it a lot. I've come close. Yeah, I have. Yeah, very cool. And uh, so while I'm, I'll keep going, Tom, if that's all right. So no worries. Um, I've actually got this the old skipper on today. Um, it's feeling it's quite summery. Well, it's actually boiling. 
in in uh, in Melbourne today. I think it's up to thirty two, and it's that real dry heat that coming from Sydney ten years ago. I was really surprised with how dry it can be down here. I guess we get some winds off uh, the desert or south south uh, Australia or something like that. But yeah, so I've got the old skipper on on its beads of rice and its beautiful orange poppy hands and the three coloured big eye. Um, so those colours are those colours are beautiful. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, it's yeah. classic seventies stuff. You know, it's it's yeah, bold, yeah. Uh, but certainly the orange really still pops, and so does the blue actually in the sun. And I like it's got that um, real sort of uh, aluminium look to the bezel. Um, I actually prefer all of the older bezels, even on Rolexes, over the the newer sort of um, ceramic type of look. Yeah, I'd agree. yeah, I agree. Aluminium bezels look a lot better than the modern ceramics. Yeah, and I did note today in the sun this one. It's not a. It's not only just a blue. It's got a little bit of green in the blue as well. So it's a really interesting color. I don't know if that's changing over time or whether that's how it was originally designed. And and I was also just thinking how it really is an Altavia with a skipper name on it. You know, it's an Altavia yeah. in case and in bezel uh, and in in every way. So it's I'm, I really love that watch. Um, and it was. Yeah, it's a it's a beauty, and I'm still drinking a uh, Bundaberg ginger beer. As soon as I finish that, that will be replaced with the uh, Starwood whiskey and ginger ale. Uh, so that'll be about ten minutes away. Very nice. How about you, Tommy? Nice. Well, I'm wearing my Vostok Amphibia on the uh, the Tropic that it comes with because I needed something that was adjustable and breathable for the this beautiful hot weather we have as was reported uh, in as a hidinky article today i think yeah that, that you sent um yeah there was a hidinky article that that they're, they're, they're uh i don't know why they're doing it uh, are they being paid or or are they just trying to mix up the content a little bit but it was good and tom said does that mean my my uh my vostok's going to suddenly go up in price and i said uh maybe maybe not yeah depends whether they the, the supply is still too uh, outstrips the demand. So, <laughs> yeah, but you know what, Jamie? If uh, if Ben Clymer starts wearing it, you never oh, know. Yeah, true. Right? Um, and I'm drinking uh, Matsu's ginger beer or alcoholic ginger beer. Ah, where's that made? I I uh, noted a few places up in Sydney last time I was it's there. It's made in Brisbane. Okay, excellent. Yeah, over over in uh, Jamie's side of Australia, up in what's well, northern Western Australia. Yeah, fantastic. The weather up there is going to be nice right now. Do you get up? Do you get a, around for holidays and stuff, Jamie? Uh, not so. To be honest, not so much for holidays, but for business, yes, because right. um, Broom, uh, you've got all the 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 helicopters and the supply uh, out to the most of the big rigs. Right. Um, and uh, Darwin quite a lot under normal circumstances without this uh, Chinese flu. And, um, yeah, all, all over, all over, really, and internationally before on business. But like what I said, sort of helicopters are they running with? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I should, I should know because I look after the, the – the, uh, it's a Eurocopter. It's the EC-225, which is okay. the, which is actually um, – better watch what I said there. But um, the, the EC-225, I believe, is the one that they've had a lot of issues with and the North Sea, a couple of them went down. Okay, so it's um, it's a, it's very efficient in terms of how many crew it can carry, how long it can go without refueling. I'm no helicopter expert, but I know that that's why it's favoured. Right. 
I've just googled it. It's a good-looking machine. I, I, yeah. I get off on all this sort of stuff. I like yeah, yeah, planes me too. and me too. helicopters. That's why I take and... a bit of a, a sort of token interest rather than just moving the wings and the spares around. But yeah, uh, but yeah, they've had some issues in the North Sea, and I think in Australia once there was one that went down. Okay. Um, so uh, it was grounded for a year at one time. Um, okay. Because of safety concerns with the the you, you know obviously you've got a gearbox between the the, the main prop and the the, the rear prop and right uh, that that linkage and, and and all of that detail so there was some modifications made so yeah that's mostly what the what the okay and it's it's known as the Puma is that right the Puma, Puma yeah yeah very cool I wonder if it can uh, is this it's also a similar helicopter that can kind of land on the water because didn't Prince William fly a helicopter that actually could land on the water if it needed to with the wheels up etc. I believe he did, but I, I don't actually know what. Um, I, I, I've got a feeling that that one might have been a like a special uh, coast guard I'm, one. This one kind of looks like it, but probably doesn't. It's very yeah, cool, anyway. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, I thought Prince William was known for flying Apaches. No, that's Henry Harry. Harry loved that. He was a marine or something. He did. He did. Yeah, they both flew helicopters, but uh, yeah. I think because one was the future king and one was the backup. Um, they were probably happier to have William in a Coast Guard type of role and um, and uh, oh, Harry okay. on the front line. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Could also be difference in the fathers as well. Who knows? Yeah, that's right. You've got to consider that too. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to get to know Jamie a bit more? I've, I had a bit of a chat with him before T-Sand turned up. Do you have Well, tell questions? me a little bit about the red bar over there, um, Jamie, because I suspect it might be a little bit different to the red bar over here who we know the... Isn't uh, Charith the senior vice president of Red Bar Melbourne? Um, I don't know what yeah. his title is, but he's certainly up there. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think um, what, what we've tried to do, and um, it, it's the same in that it's the same global organisation that we're, um, you know, that we're sort of um, uh, using mm. and, uh, and, and approved to be part of, but it's different, or I suppose a little bit different than what I've seen before. I think it would be fair to say that our focus is about really um, a bit more egalitarianism, less of the, the elitism. Um, it's, it's great having red bar events when you've got lots of APs and Rolex uh, and, yeah. and that's all welcome. But I think we've really focused on trying to bring new people in, you know, no matter what the watch they have is, we're trying to be really inclusive and that's been a focus from day one. And that's sort of how Rob and I um, and, and Andy, our, our friend uh, who's, who's also uh doing that with us that, that that was sort of how we came into it and mm. i think it's it's um it's, it's really been uh, exciting because there's a lot of uh, there's a few few ladies coming in as well which is which is always good to keep the quota up because yep. you know it's hard for hard for hard for them i suppose to get into the hobby and a lot of young guys just starting out with their collections and um through rob's connections with with his business it's also meant that that you know a lot a lot of his uh, customers or, or ex-customers um, who again are maybe buying some of the independence that, that he, he uh, looks after from Europe, from Switzerland, um, and then coming to the events and, and getting exposed to a, a hell of a lot of new new, new things. Yeah. So it's, it's been one of the best things, you know, we've really, yeah, I think we've all gotten a lot out of it. And uh, we've had three or f four events, four really successful events, probably quite large ones. Uh, not not by Melbourne standards, but I mean we've got about 110 people signed up now here, um, and probably an average of 50 or 60 at each event. So it's, that's excellent. Yeah, so it's growing. Yeah, I wonder also if this is if there's something in um, that might be quite successful in Perth 
because are there any other watch groups already? Because I think in Melbourne there's probably already three or four different groups. Yes, there's a lot of overlap, but uh, there are different groups. And then in Sydney, uh, I assume there's a couple of different groups up there as well. So maybe yeah. Perth will benefit from the fact that there's there's really just hopefully one group, which is Red Bar, that people will be getting into. Well, what's really good is um, I suppose there's only one light Red Bar that, that's actually, how do you say, branded and, and recognised. Um, and and I think uh, even by... Um, even by people who aren't deep in the in the hobby, it's still recognised. So there's a bit of a comfort factor for them to, to join. Yeah. Um, in terms of other groups, there's uh, you know myself, Rob, and Andy are also in a group of gentlemen that are are, are are probably more on the high end collectors who get together regularly and have breakfast. Who's run by another friend of ours who who, who does a fantastic job of that. But that's that's probably more of uh, coffee, you know, lunch. Uh, we're having a dinner together in, in, in a few weeks, nice. uh, that type of thing. And, and on the red bar, we're trying to align more with, with brands, exposed to new brands. Also, uh, we've got a bit of sponsorship from different brands like Oris have been really helpful to us. Yeah. Uh, Peter's been fantastic. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I haven't heard about, anyone say anything bad about Peter. Oh, no, what a guy. Yeah, fantastic bloke. So, um, so I think we're taking two different approaches. So the, the groups are very different uh, in a good way. And there is a lot of overlap too. So... Yeah. yeah. So Excellent. I think that's the only two I'm 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 aware of really. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got your hands in both of them. That's great. I wish yeah. You, yeah, it's good. wish you the best over there. Yeah. yeah it's been fantastic. And I've been threatening with Rob for ages that uh you know this Rob Fest really does have to happen in Perth uh oh. or in WA and it needs to be at least a 3-day event and as many of us as possible need to get over there preferably by car. Um, and we'll just drive around and do different things on different days. So um, you're welcome to drive T San. If I'm going, I'm probably flying. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would love to do that. I've been in Australia for 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 a while, but I've I've not been able to do that drive yet. I've just not had the time. So um, I mean, obviously it's the other way, so that wouldn't work. But I'd love to I'd love to do that drive. But um, you know, come to Perth, do the Swan Valley and uh, and all of that, and the hills driving. Yeah, the hills some of the other Perth. secret places that Rob mentioned in the last pod. Yeah, I, I think I, I tend I tend to agree with Rob though that that having fast cars and and enjoying driving is a bit of a challenge here because we've got a few nice roads, but um, we've got a lot of arbitrary limits. I suppose you do there as well, but um, you know you've got the speed limits to consider, and you've also got the the fact that you know you can only drive the same road so many times. It's half decent, so um, you can't really go fast very often here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, but there's still a lot of nice cars around. I don't know. I think it's uh, I, certainly, I know Rob mentioned that before. Maybe it's the argument for buying a really old car because, you know, you get the revs up and you're having fun and you're actually not going that fast. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Or, or, or even something like an 86 or an old MR2 or something that's a bit more, um, I think, uh, accessible. You can have, have amazing fun with it with it here, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that, yeah, something to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. What do you reckon, Tom? Should we get the Targa up onto, we'll jack up the suspension and we'll put some big four-wheel drives on it and uh, tyres and we'll uh, safari across to WA. All right, if you're doing that, maybe I'll come in. <laughs> There's still no air the, conditioning. That's the you, problem. You, you've, seen, uh, right. you've seen Matt Farah's uh, Safari 911, yeah? Yeah. What a car. Very I nice. Love, yeah, I love all of the, um, all of the uh, safaris. Mm. 
Yeah, but, that, um, that Lee Keen that makes him, he can drive too. Yeah, uh, very good. Well, I'm sure I'll learn a lot more about Jamie and his cars as we progress, Tom. Uh, do we want to go to some news? Sure. Um, so the week that we're recording this, um, it's the week before the Daytona 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's shaping up to be a very interesting year with the um, new rules come, having come in that the GTE cars have just been phased out. Um, and it's now um, just prototypes and GT3 cars, but split into a pro and then a pro-am category. Um, uh, and for this year or for next year? For this year. And right. this is the um, final year of the current DPI regulations before LMDH comes in, which will see the top-level um, IMSA American prototypes being able to compete in Le Mans. And same with the European cars being able to compete in the top level in America as well. So they with will the be able to, is that what you're saying? Sorry? They will be able to, is that right? Yes, with the likes of Porsche um, creating new cars and having programs in both America and Europe okay. to essentially conquer them all, conquer the world. Awesome. I mean, again, I'm a, a novice in this area, but um, Daytona has a pretty unique track, is that right, for the 24 hours? Correct, because it's a it's an oval that then has a um, road course section, so like a normal circuit on part of a normal circuit on the inside. Um, yeah. So they use parts of the oval and then cut into the infield and then cut back out onto the oval. Yeah. Which it makes for. Um, I was lucky enough to go there, like twenty sixteen or fifteen, um, for the they do this thing called the Raw, which was last weekend which is a test before the race um, right. at the Daytona. And it's amazing to be there because um, you go inside the track and you're constantly surrounded by cars. Hmm. So I don't know how any oh, – well, you get used to it, but for a 24-hour race, there would be no silence for the race no. unless there's a red flag because you're just completely encased by the cars when you're on the yeah. inside so the track. So spectators watch from the inside, not from the outside? Inside and outside. There's the right. outside grandstand, um, which is where you typically go for like the NASCAR and things like that. Yeah. But then there's also infield camping areas as well. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Certainly you'd be immersed in it, wouldn't you? Because it's not like, I guess, um, Le Mans where they, uh, like, while there's cars obviously coming around all the time, once the race is underway, it, it's such a, a large racetrack right Uh, whereas this is as you say like a large oval really isn't it yeah particularly if you're on the in like the nascar stands you can see the whole track yeah right pretty cool yeah and your plan is just to sit down and and watch that all weekend is that right tom yes yeah from it starts for us sunday morning at 6 a.m um and that's probably going to be my sunday i'm still debating about if i try stay up or not because I need to work Monday morning. Very good. Yeah. Oh, and there's been some other new, sorry, I don't want to move on and come back to it, but talking of Porsche, I think it was just today that it was announced that they're going to be in Formula One engines. Uh, uh, for a couple no, of... that, that's that's rumours that have been going on for years. Yeah? 
I'll, be, I'll believe it when Porsche themselves announce it, but I don't I don't see it happening with them running in LMDH as well as Audi um, running in LMDH, and I think Lamborghini are meant to be also in a couple of years going into LMDH. Right. So you're um, saying what? There's just too much going on with, with the, that and Formula One. Pretty much the entire Volkswagen Audi group is getting into the yeah. prototypes. Um, so I don't see them going into F1. Yeah. Mm. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, there was something about that. I read that as well about obviously uh, Volkswagen Group owning those different brands. Uh, and I was talking with someone recently over the weekend about watches and uh, they were very, very surprised to learn that, you know, all of these luxury branded watches are owned by the Swatch Group in the, in, in that instance that we were talking about. Um, not that I'm suggesting that uh, either the Swatch Group, the Swatch brand or the Volkswagen brand are inferior, inferior in any way, but it's a really interesting thing if, you know, people generally out there actually knew anything around these huge groups, luxury groups that own cars or luxury brands and how they operate. I think it's um, market consolidation like that is, is, I suppose, natural, but I think it's interesting how, on, on the car side, what they do, like if you look at VAG Group, um, for most people that know cars, it's quite obvious by looking at the, the different models that there's a commonality and a lot of sharing of platforms and, and, mm. and, and parts. Whereas with the Swatch Group and the different brands, each brand in its own right is, I assume, its own entity because mm. they have their own design, they have their own signatures, they have their own, you know, it's not like they share the same, to my knowledge, I suppose they share movements, but they don't share the case. They, they, you know, there's less sort of um, homogenous um, approach. Yeah, yeah. the um, only thing they carry over is the bit you can't see. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not obvious by looking at a watch brand that it's owned by the same group, my, in my view. Yeah? Whereas yeah. with Porsche, uh, uh, Audi, Volkswagen, you can sort of tell by looking at the car and a lot of times. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm it, kind you of know. surprised one of these, um, one of the more niche luxury groups, hasn't actually got both car and watch brands. Yeah, like some buying out some of the like a Pininfarina or some kind of um, small boutique brand like that. Yeah. Well, while you're on, because well, you've mentioned them as well, uh, I think just in the last week as well, that uh, Porsche design are celebrating 50 years um, of their uh, of their existence or their, you know, their great designs as well. So that was some recent news that came out. Um, depending on how long it takes Tom to edit this particular episode, I'm just trying to give some people some time, time frames, that's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's probably. a, there's a, um, there's an exhibition, I think at the Porsche Museum starting very shortly, um, a Porsche design exhibition that runs through to June or July. And I'm actually hoping, really hoping that I might be able to get there. I've got a, um, a rowing tour to Europe in May, hopefully happening. And uh, I'd like to think that at the end of that, I could spend an extra week and get there for that because I think that'd be really special. Yeah. I mean, the Porsche, Porsche Museum is going to be special for me anyway because I haven't been before. But to have a dedicated sort of Porsche design uh, exhibit would be really interesting for me as well. Yeah, that would be amazing. You, you, you've got one of the watch. You, you've got is that Chrono you have, Tison? Yeah, yeah, I've got that uh, the one with the fifty one hundred movement in it. Yeah, um, I'm, I can't, I can't yeah. remember exactly what day 
date, what year it is, but it's definitely, you know, early 70s. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that one came out in 72. And it's an Orphina as well when you take the, uh, the back off it and have a look at the movement, which is certainly uh, the, first, the first one that came out in 72, I think, was uh, produced by them. Okay. Uh, with obviously with obviously the Porsche design and the Porsche design uh, logo on the dial, uh, but yeah, I love that watch. It's it's not like all my watches. It's not mint by any means, uh-huh. and I really like that on that black sort of PVD sort of coating that they've got going. I like it sort of a, a little bit banged up, not too much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's such a cool watch, and you know, no surprise, it it went really well with the Porsche. Like it, the the the. Reminded me of the analog dials in the Porsche as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, beautiful. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I was so impatient that I actually, when I got the car, I, I bought a Dan Henry. Dan Henry does one for like three hundred bucks, uh, US. Like um, a homage to, to, to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's. I haven't it's, seen that Dan Henry. Yeah, it's quartz and it has an alarm function, which is really cool. <laughs> right. Um, and it's almost identical. So. I bought that. It arrived really quickly. They're really good, by the way. That company. They're very. Their 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 delivery is great, and their product is great for the price. And, and the, um, the designs are beautiful. I mean, although they're mostly homage, the, the designs are beautiful. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I don't I don't mind homage at all in general because usually the person who's buying it can't afford the real thing or can't get a hold of it, right? So it's not not like they've lost Porsche designer sale by selling that watch. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and for me, yes, it's lovely, absolutely. And a privilege to own like both that watch and the car. But um, if you couldn't afford it and you're not hung up on brand, then you're getting the same experience really uh, with that watch. So yeah, that one, that one's called the 1972, no surprise, because that's when, when it, the original I'll, came out. I'll have a look at that, yeah. Yeah, have a look at it. And they actually also do it in a silver, which I'm almost thinking of buying because it really looks cool. Like it's it's silver with blue accents as opposed to the black with orange or reddy accents. Yeah. And, um, yeah, really cool. So uh, I, 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 wore, I wore that for a while. And when when I decided, yep, that's that's that all works, I then started looking for the uh, 5100, which was a really interesting search because they so many different brands made them, Lamania um Porsche design and also Orfina. I think there's another one as well. And then the 5100 movements in is in many many other watches of yeah. different designs as yeah, well. I've I've seen that case shape. Um Hoya have one. Hoya, yeah. Pasadena. Yeah. Um and then I've also even seen a rotary version of it as well. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure there's more as well. I'm sure there are. Um, I think with the with the idea of a homage of, of a piece like that or, or, or similar, but what it's also allowing people is to get in and develop their taste, understand what they like and don't like before they put down big dollars on something, even if they, and maybe in 10 years they've got the money or, or you know, however long. So yeah. it's actually uh, favourable to the, the brand, I think, to have these homages out there because it's, uh, I suppose the whole journey is just developing taste, you know, that's why you buy and sell or just buy in some cases. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really no, I agree. A good thing. Yeah. yeah. Zin also did it, having a quick look. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So just, you know, just so many very cool sort of Germany sort of type of watches. Um, but uh, I agree. I think um, I think it's, especially with Dan Henry, the different designs that they do, they're such from different decades um, that really only up until recently, no one was, no one was doing sort of a new version of those old designs. You either knew about those old designs 
uh, or you didn't. And yeah. if you did, you know, to find one in reasonably good nick was almost impossible. And then, of course, you had to pay for it. So I yeah. like what they're doing. And I think um, some other micro brands now are doing a similar thing, but they're just doing it at a high end and it's still costing, you know, $3,000, $5,000 for a watch. Whereas yeah. Dan Henry is literally 200, 300 US. And I think they're their two price points. And that's yeah. good too. Yeah. I read I read something I think about the 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 person Dan Henry and he himself is a massive vintage collector. And yeah, yeah. I, th- I think he's a real enthusiast, and that yeah. also makes you feel a bit more comfortable about what the comp- the, the brand is doing. And how yeah, as true. I understand it, it, he set up the brand for exactly what Tishan said. It's to um, allow people to own classic and famous styles, but for a reasonable price. I've been very, I'm sure I've met him because um, I've been very lucky. The head of the Charles Regatta, which is in October every year in Boston, I then go and spend another week with a mate of mine who lives in New York on Manhattan Island. Mm -hmm. And twice out of three three years, I think the wind-up watch fair in New York was on the very weekend I was there. Uh, And this would have been sort of still fairly early days for Dan Henry. I think... um, uh, not sure whether the 1972 was out yet or not. So this is about four to five years ago. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that he had that collection back then. And then I probably started following Dan Henry on Instagram. And um, and that's when I started to see, oh, wow, this guy's got the real things. Yeah. You know, and, a, and a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, to, Tommy? Do we want to talk about Callan Williams? Yeah, I, th- I think... Um... I just wanted to mention about uh, some news. Uh, so, Callan Williams is uh, a young uh, 22, 23 year old Perth uh, chap uh, who's had a fantastic few years in F3. Um, yeah. Comes from a middle class uh, family uh, here, in, uh, here in Perth. Okay. Um, he, he was basically, um, he's got his place in F2 next year. Uh, now, which was announced uh, last week, so he's going to compete in F two with uh, Trident, and uh, his uh, his dad Greg Williams is, is is a friend of mine, and he also is involved in Red Bar or, or comes to the Red Bar events. Excellent. And um, myself and a few of my friends are also um, the way that Callan, I mean, I think uh, it costs uh, three four four million dollars to, to 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 finance an F two F two for one year. So um, he's from relatively humble beginnings. So um, in order to finance, he's got some really good sponsors. Dale Alcock, um, who is uh, uh, one of the most successful um, home builders here in Western Australia. Okay. He, he's he's his um, uh, lead sponsor, but he also has an investment program for, uh, for his sort of fan base, if you like. And uh, you can invest now and then you get a share of his um, salary and and, and uh, endorsements when he get when and if he gets into F one, wow, uh, that's cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a good opportunity, and it's also just being part of it, being part of the story is really exciting. So, and when you get to to so so Greg puts on with some of the sponsors regular business lunches and explains to to us and gets Callan involved. But obviously, Callan's over in, in Europe now because he's still been competing, but. Uh, explains and then you get to have some time with Callan and and when you hear this young guy speak and you see how driven and determined but humble he is um I, I really have a lot of belief that he, he could be the next Ricardo and if you imagine having two F1 
not only competitors but potentially uh, successful uh, champs in coming from Western Australia, it's um it's like a lightning strikes twice uh, situation, you know. So there's a yeah, lot of people cool. here, here behind him, and uh, yeah, the news came last week that he got his uh, his F two spot, and and uh, we're all very excited about that. So follow him on his website and and, and on Instagram and. Have a look at Callan and, and uh, there's details about his, his sponsors and his investment program there. It's, it's all very exciting. Yeah? Oh, I'm glad you explained that because as soon as you said he's from a you know a middle class or you know not a super rich family, put it that way, I, I'm like, how does that happen? Because my understanding is that you know anyone, not even at Formula One level, but other levels, you know, you really do need to have a lot of your own your own money. Yeah, and it's get and there. It's, it's it's amazing what what they've achieved. Uh, and uh, you know the, the same similar story to to Ricardo. He's he's been uh, in carts and and worked his way up and uh, really. Did Ricardo uh, have some money behind him though? Uh, Ricardo is, I believe, also from a from a, a middle class family. But I think that potentially, as I understand it, investment was easier for him to 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 come by. His family okay. quite well connected. I don't, I right. don't know, but but for Callan, uh, you know, he's he's both his mum and dad work, but they have normal jobs, normal people. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's quite it's quite, it tugs on for me. It's uh, it's quite an emotive one because if if you see a guy like that getting to F one, um, because F one is one of those sports. And look, I follow I follow F one and I try and travel to F one. The last one I was um, we did uh, Abu Dhabi a couple of years back. Um, you know, and it's ridiculously expensive just to spectate, yeah. But, <laughs> but the thing is that you know that these guys on the grid are 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 all very privileged individuals, and it's and it's cost prohibitive, no matter how talented you are, to get yeah. into that sport. And Callan's the exception to that, and he's he's done incredibly well. So we're all very proud of him. Yeah, that's, that's I'd awesome. like to say, this isn't the first time I've heard of. Um... Like someone of a reasonably humble background, coming from a reasonably small town, for example, and just knocking door to door, getting small businesses to just pitch in like small amounts of money. Yeah. But it's the first time I've ever heard of someone doing an actual investment program. Yeah, it's a it's a great idea, and I think um, uh, lots of people signed up when he was still in F three and he didn't have his F two spot. Um, so. You know your proportionate risk, I suppose, of them eventually being an F one. But I, I think mostly the investors are doing it to be part of the story to get involved, as well as the potential uh, return on investment is quite significant. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, with crowd surf, crowd sourcing, or crowd, yeah, and also, um, what's the other one? Uh, a lot of um, watches, Kickstarter sort of stuff. I mean, it's the yeah. same sort of thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, and, and and it's enabled them to, um, and that's not to understate what. Guys like Dale Alcock and and other significant business people and 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 the state have done for them. Yeah, they've yeah. they've been incredibly supportive. But at the same time, bringing together, you know, the the, the investment program has been really good for them too. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's it's a great idea, and I think that just shows that they're innovative. They'll try they'll try anything. They work hard. That's what you want to see. You know. So. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, I you know I've mentioned it before, but. It's just nice to see a guy who, um, you know, seems relatively normal and smiles and has a good time and, and is good at what he does. Um, certainly, you know, sort of channeling Ricardo here. Um, but it'd be nice to see, yeah. And also, you know, it's not the first time Australia and, and 
on, along the same lines. New Zealand, for example, both seem to punch above their weight, their weight quite frankly. So always yeah. great to see people on a world stage who come from a relatively small or very a relatively small and also, you know, we're an island in the middle of nowhere. We are a little more disconnected from the rest of the world, especially Europe and the USA. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and, it's great to and, see. And when you see the impact that Ricardo's made and, like you say, he's, he's he's also you know got a lot of humility. He's 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 a he's a genuine guy. I think that's really good for the state. It's really good for for, for the people back here to, to to watch. You know, I would I would like to. to I, I wonder how the English feel about um, some of their F one stars. You know, when they see them and how they behave. So um, you know, I think it's I think it's good to see. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I like a grumpy bum like Kimmy as well, but uh, it is nice. <laughs> oh yeah, to... that's that's okay. I'm talking more about um, yeah, big sort of gruff, yeah, soury sort of guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm talking more about Lewis Hamilton, who who I, I don't <laughs> I don't think has the right you know the right personality for for sport. But... Well, I've never warmed to him, and it's just, no. and I don't know why, but I'm sure there's something in that, right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. the guy's obviously an eight time champion or seven time, eight time champion, but you know. But if you don't warm to someone, you still go, well, what's going on there? Yeah, what's right. going on? Mm. To be honest, to start with, like uh, 15, 16, 17, I hated Hamilton, but recently I've actually started to warm to him a bit more. Uh, but I do prefer Max winning to Hamilton. Just yeah. a bit sick of Hamilton winning. Yeah. Yeah, it's going through his, um, his website now. He certainly puts the, certainly looks like he puts the work in. Um, he's had some coaching from Ricardo as well. Yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's done he's done amazingly well. Yeah. Very cool. All right, love pouring the Starwood whiskey now. And also, Tommy, you sent through a link for um, before we delve even deeper into cars. Uh, something around this a British sailor who was jailed for selling his issued watch or something like that. So there was a this article that I read on Time and Tide, um, which was about a British sailor who was going around on, um, and taking uh, watches from the SBS. Um, so the SBS is the Special Boat Service, which is the uh, British Navy's Special Forces Unit. Um, and he was selling the CWC... Uh, issued uh, dive watches, um, which yeah. is a specific watch that CWC make for the SBS. Yeah. Um, and the way he got caught was he sold them on eBay <laughs> and one of the collectors that bought it contacted the MOD to verify it's... Um, yeah, right. If it was legitimate or not and if it was an actual service watch. And yeah, and they the said yes. Went, yeah, it is. It's serving right now. Hang on a second. How have you got it? <laughs> exactly. Nice. Um, I've never seen um, the decommissioning uh, papers, but I know that um, I think it's my Lamania uh, HS9, which was a uh, hydrographic service watch uh, for when they used to fly two-man planes over the coast of an island and basically draw it from the from the sky um on the back of that there's obviously the military markings and when they're decommissioned they get actually get a line drawn through them um i know that happens on the back of watches but i don't know what the de decommissioning papers actually look like that 
apparently come with um, these very expensive watches. Didn't you mention on the last pod as well, Tom, that um, Spike Spike Verison, uh got a tutor that was French Navy that had yeah, its decommissioning and, papers as well? Yeah. Um, I imagine they're not very interesting to look at. They're probably just regular mm-hmm. papers that say model number, make, blah, 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 blah. And just just one of those a, things. A that stamp that just says decommissioned at the bottom. Yeah, that you can charge an extra couple of thousand dollars for that particular watch for. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's not too bright selling it on eBay, I don't think. No, I think he just underestimated how nerdy watch collectors are. Well, but also, especially with the eBay fee, fees, I think I sold something on there for the first time in years and years and almost fell over when oh. I ended up getting the money that after their fees was take, were taken out. So yeah, never it's not, again. It's absolutely, uh, yeah, the fees, I, I did the same thing. and uh, They've even uh, taken over the payments so they don't use PayPal for the payments anymore. eBay controls all the payments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will hold your money until... And yeah, if exactly. you try to use any form of conversation outside of PayPal, PayPal can auto-detect it and shut it down and censor it. Yeah, and it's very, very expensive. I think for a yeah. $4,000 watch, it's like, I don't know, feasible, like 300 bucks, 350 Totally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, um, I mean, for a guy who used to buy and sell stuff on eBay before, yeah, well, before, before watches blew up, really. I mean, that's where I bought most of my vintage watches on eBay. Um and um, they were the good old days. Like you know, it wasn't that much to. Well, certainly it was free to buy, and but but the sellers didn't get absolutely nailed either. Yeah. So um, just just to wrap up the story quickly, um, the sailor was dismissed uh, from the service. Wow. Sentenced to three months in military pis- um, prison, <laughs> and has to pay one thousand three hundred sixty-seven pounds and seventy pence. Conduct unbecoming a British sailor selling watches. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty that's pretty strong having to do the uh, do the time three months. I mean, yeah, that's quite quite strong. Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, well, he looks like an entrepreneurial young fellow in that picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he looks like he's about to sneeze in the photo. <laughs> Stolen a few cars all the time as well, by the looks of it. <laughs> It sounds like a, a, a legitimate backstory to starting up your own um, micro brand. Anyway, put it that way. Oh, that's a good yeah. Yeah, that or he's going to be caught in nine months' time uh, after being rammed off a moped. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Nah, uh, that only happens if you wear Rolexes around. I think. Yeah, he's he's going to move up up the world. I would just like to touch on quickly over the past two weekends, actually. There's been a virtual, uh, two virtual 24-hour races. Last weekend was the virtual Daytona 24, which took place on iRacing, um, which is one of the major uh, simulator games, in inverted commas, or programs, depending on how technical you want to get. Um, but what this is, is it's uh, the game runs a couple of different time zone 24-hour real-time races. Um, they start a couple of different time zones depending on if you're in Australia, um, Europe, or America. Um, but it's run pretty much exactly like the real race. There's multiple classes with prototypes and the GTs. Um, you enter your own car. You can do up 
make your own liveries, enter with multiple drivers and share the thing and have driver changes. Um, so that was Daytona. And then the week before, they had the same thing, which was based at Le Mans, but this was done in a, another game called R-Factor, and it was more of a it was a professional event, whereas the iRacing one, um, they split it up based off skill. And I'll find the stat here. Um, but the guy who runs iRacing said it was the most entered event they've ever hosted and might be the most entered event technically for racing ever. 3,911 teams and 1,000, sorry, 15,780 drivers. Wow. And I read another article about some kid who's now actually driving cars for someone. Um, and I'm sure it's not the first time that someone's been picked out of virtual racing and, and been moved into yeah, real racing. Yeah, there's Did a couple of them. So the probably one of the original and the biggest poster charts for it was a guy from Wales called Jan Mardenborough, who he went through the PlayStation Gran Turismo Academy. Um, and he yep. raced for many years for Nissan as a professional driver. Okay. More recently, uh, I believe there's a guy that races Porsches in Carrera Cup in Europe. Um, a Turkish guy. Yeah, that might have been the guy. I'm not going to try to pronounce his name because I don't remember it and I'll butcher it. Um, but there's also a guy out of England who's um, uh, a sim racer and a YouTuber and he's recently spent last year um, driving these prototype things called Pragas, and his name's Jimmy Broadbent, um, and he actually did Daytona this weekend with um, uh, Roman Grosjean was in his team because uh, Roman oh, Grosjean right. is like an investor yeah. in Praga. Um, so yeah, really cool to see. Right. Um, so the the guy amazing, many years ago. Um, through a lot of unfortunate circumstances in his life, ended up moving back in with his mum and living in the shed in their backyard. And then three or four years later, he's moved out just through YouTube, has bought his own house, has heaps of his dream cars and is essentially good friends with a Formula 1 driver. Yeah. Highly recommend um, looking at his stuff because he does a lot of fun videos. Um, and, yeah, just cool to see. That's Jimmy Broadbent, is it? Check it out. Another young person making a, at least a living, if not lots of money out of yep. the internet. It's pretty cool. Yeah, all right. Um, do we want to move on to Jamie's car history? Absolutely. Let's hear it. Oof. What was your first car? What's the background? Tell us all about it, Jamie. Uh, okay, okay. So, yeah, first car was probably, uh, if, I, if I think, so yeah, I was, um, I grew up in a, a sort of ex-mining town, uh, working class background, so uh, didn't have uh, much uh, money. So uh, I actually started uh, with a motorcycle license. Right. Um, and I didn't learn to drive until I was probably 21. I had my motorcycle license since I was 16, so I had four or five years. But in Scotland, all year round um, on your motorcycle is, is not fun. No. What was your first motorcycle? Uh, so my first motorcycle was a, a, a Honda. It was a, a what you call an XBR 500, which is a single cylinder thumper. You, you know, a single cylinder, um, 500 cc, so big, big piston. Um, 
sort of uh, classically styled. Uh, you know, these days it would be more of called a cafe racer or something like that. But okay. So, so uh, I basically, uh, I had a 30, 40 kilometer commute to work each way. And I was getting stuck in snow. I was, you know, a couple of nights I was sleeping at the side of the road, all sorts of crazy stuff. So I got fed up, but I couldn't afford to get my car license yet. So the first car I got was actually a Reliant Robin three-wheeler because you can drive one of those on a motorcycle license, but it's actually a car, but it's okay. three wheels. So I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but I don't think you get them here in Australia. I'm not sure. No, we don't have that many three-wheelers in Australia, but is that no, Mr. Bean that, car? That's it's- a Mr. Bean car. And also the car from uh, Only Fools and Horses, the, the TV show. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the front wheel is, is a single wheel, two re- rear wheel drive, rear axle, and uh, you steer with the front wheel. And it's very, very unstable. So you have to go around <laughs> corners very, very slowly, which I didn't. So I flipped it a few times. Yeah. Um, and it's fiberglass. The body is made of fiberglass. So you just flip it, you land on the, the roof. And it just yeah. cracks a little bit, and then you just get out and lift it up and and, and tip it back over again. Does um, the glass smash when you do that? No, no, they're very sturdy. I've got to say they're very sturdy. But wow. the, the difficulty is when it snows, it looks nice at first, but then you know a few hours later, all of the cars go over the snow and it gets slushy yeah. and shitty and horrible. Yeah, and it all piles up in the middle of the road. So therefore, you've got this kind of peak in the middle of snow, but the middle wheel is the one you used to steer. Yes. So when, even so, so even in the snow you can't you can't steer you don't know where you're going it's, it's, and it's rear wheel drive so it's quite easy to drift so uh, so yeah like uh, that was my that was my first car and I didn't get my, my car license until I was twenty one uh, and then I started because of again because of budget constraints at the time I, I started on uh, Japanese cars so I had Supras MR twos the original the Mark one which I loved I had about four oh, like, of those yeah um, great car great car and uh, really teaches you how to drive because they're quite dangerous in the snow and ice and, 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 and the wet, you know. Mm. Uh, but I lift off oversteer with those, probably a bit like a, a, an early 911 in terms of uh, the, way they, the, the way they handle. Yeah. Really rear bias. Um, then, uh, you know, gradually... Uh, That's a pretty good start, man. Supras and uh, MR2s. Yeah, but th- these are very cheap in, in, in the UK, you know. So like £1,000 would get you a good... Super, yeah. not a turbo, but but I had turbos later. But uh, Japanese cars are just like you know pocket money. I'm just gonna, yeah. I just want to cut in quickly. Sorry, um, I need to thank Sebastian, the natural escapement, for reminding me about sim racing and to talk about it. Forgot to thank him when I was talking about it earlier with the virtual stuff. Uh, but T Samuel, when uh, the episode gets released, go through the show notes and I'll. Add a funny video from Top Gear of Jeremy just rolling Reliant Robins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, very good. So, and, uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, um, that rear bias thing is something I'm super conscious of, especially on my track day. And uh, and I I've only taken on the track once, and Tom was there and helping me. But um, it was interesting because in the morning we had a couple of sessions with an instructor. And in the afternoon, they let you do your own thing. And one thing I found that I was doing was, um, well, the instructor was sort of telling me to brake harder earlier before the turn and then obviously be able to accelerate uh, out of or or even around most of the turn. Uh And what I found I was doing in the afternoon was, I don't know, trying to be be better, but 
leaving my braking later and then obviously I wasn't braking enough by the time the turn sort of started and then the temptation there is to lift off uh, and that's where the arse of a 911 can really let go. Yeah, Um, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, so it's that it's that lift off oversteer that's really dangerous because people don't expect it. It's not it's yeah. not power, yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. And actually, um, my brother, my younger brother, wrote one of my MR twos off just for that very reason because he um, he was going around the roundabout and he wanted to slow down, so he, he you know it was wet. He was turning round the roundabout and he took yeah. his foot off the accelerator and the car just spun like that. Yeah. He was only going forty k's, but he ended up in a bush. And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so they are quite, uh, they are they are quite with no driver aids as well back then. So, and then the other thing I think also is that you you would appreciate that no Australian has experienced driving in the snow, really, right? So yeah, um, I think that helps you as well because you know to be able to drive a car or keep it relatively under control under those conditions is is building your you know your driving uh, expertise, yes. uh, which is something that we don't have here. It definitely is, and, and I think it's really good. It's, it's really good for for that. And um, I was fortunate enough back in, in the early days to do a few uh, like police. Uh, the, the, the police because there were so many road deaths on motorcycles. The police were voluntarily um, taking people up, uh, uh, taking people out. And what you did was um, uh, we went up one of the roads, uh, you know, maybe one of the the coastal roads or one of the bendy roads up to the to in, into the mountains. Mm. And you followed the, the, the police riders and then on the way back, they follow you and you're always in radio contact and they're telling you what to do and looking three corners ahead and, and all of this good stuff. And, and these guys are amazing. You know, they, they, yeah. they, they can read the road. So like all, all of that com, com, comes, comes into it. And, and I think uh, I'm, I don't consider myself to be a, a, a good driver. I've done a lot of track days. I've done a lot of miles on motorways because I used to drive a thousand miles a week with my, with my job. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think I'm 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 average at best, but probably quite uh, safe going quickly, and that's uh, the yeah. most important thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's funny uh, you mentioned that. I mean, I I have these thoughts every now and again, and and just recently as well, I thought, what is it to be a good driver? Just to interrupt your car history for a second, Jamie. For, yeah. It's funny. I don't know if it's because I'm getting older now, but I actually have started in my mind. As when I drive the, especially when I drive the Merc, um, which has very little sort of uh, actual driving interaction uh, required, I guess I start daydreaming and thinking about these things. And, and I start to think, what would I define being a good driver as? And it's strange. It's things like um, being able to stay in the middle of your lane would be pretty high up on the list there and a skill that a lot of people I see don't seem to have, yeah. um, especially when coming up to to, to a turn they seem to like to turn sort of out of their lane first before they take the actual turn so come into your lane before they turn left or something yeah, like that yeah um another one i think and we've talked about this uh tom is uh i think using your blinker also makes you a good driver um especially around a roundabout i was driving home the other evening and i was waiting to i think get onto a roundabout and a dude was already on there and he had his blinker on to turn right because he was obviously going around the roundabout. Yeah. But then he didn't exit. He didn't put his left left turn blinker on as he exit the the roundabout. So I actually had no idea which exit he was taking. Um, 
So stuff like that. And then, then even, I guess you could go a step further and say, you know, does driving uh, at the speed limit also make you a good driver? But I have thought about that recently. What does define being a good driver these days? Yeah, that's 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 a good one, and and I always think back to um, yeah. Well, part part of my story is I suppose that when I when I got deeper and deeper into the cars and motorcycles and started really spending money, I think um, I was I was going over to uh, Europe uh, on the weekends, taking long weekends all the time, and you know you have to be able to switch between right hand and left hand yeah uh, drive uh, just sort of uh, quite easily and yeah. Um, I think that's also an experience that probably most people driving here, I don't know so much about it. No. Driving here, they haven't had, and you really need to think, yeah, and then it becomes natural. Yeah. Um, but that's also an interesting one when you're, when you're, and, you know, you, you guys will know when you go to Germany, for example, and you're on the Autobahn, um, they prioritise safety, but, but safety going very quickly and, yeah. uh, you know, pulling in as soon as you pass someone, yeah, um, not holding other cars up, you know, the big totally. S8 behind you or something, you know, and that's totally. that's what it should be about rather than yeah. arbitrary limits and and I can't, yeah, absolutely. I, I've, so driving on the um, there's a nice bit of freeway out to the airport, which is actually the way I go to Tom's place as well. Um, mm-hmm. And very, very rarely are you allowed to drive at 100 kilometers an hour. I think it's only uh, eight before 8 a.m. in the morning. So most of the time I'm driving, it's at eight, it's at 80, which is a little slow. Um, yeah. But um, it doesn't matter what the speed is. A lot of Australian drivers obviously think that it's a slight to their manhood to drive in the left-hand lane, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, firstly, I'm like, well, thank you. I'll drive in the left-hand lane because no one else is in it. And I can just sit in the left-hand lane at the speed limit and overtake people who are driving slower than me in the second or the third or the fourth lane over. Um but yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely something that defines a good driver. You overtake on the right, and you you get back in, and then you go right over to the left. Like, what's the problem? Yeah, yeah, because I, th- I think that I think the, the 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 culture or the attitude in, in Europe, especially somewhere like Germany, where they, 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 they prioritize efficiency above everything, is that you don't want to be delaying someone else. So therefore, yeah. you must get back into your lane, and and if you don't, it's it's, it's torture. I mean. Yeah, uh, it takes a little bit of um, acclimatization, especially on a motorbike, because you're sometimes accelerating up to ninety miles an hour to join traffic. Yeah, but yeah, scary. Um, but once you're there, it's sort of you get used to it, you know. Mm. So, um, so yes, I think um, I started with the Japanese stuff and, and quickly um, quickly got a bit bored of that, and I, I really was always into aesthetics and um, in some ways design, I suppose. Yeah. So, so therefore. The Japanese stuff never really got me excited, and I was always, um, I was always lusting after, you know, German cars. My, my uncle at the time went through several E30 BMWs. He had a beautiful awesome. maroon 325i with a cream leather interior, and that car Lovely. was just ah, oh, spectacular. And it, Love it. you know, th- yeah, things like that. And and I think these are formative uh, things for you when you when you're growing up. So, um, yeah, I, w- I went through a series of 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 sort of um, fast BMWs, Mercedes, but not AMG or M-Series. And then when I got more money, I, I became a, a, an M-Series guy. And uh, then in 2006, uh, so there's really too many cars to mention. Sorry. Yeah, there's a lot of cars. Yeah. but, but How long then, would you keep a car for? Uh, I had plenty at one time when I started to, to, to earn some money, but probably <laughs> um, a few a few months at a time. 
and I had a I had the good thing was I've always worked in the same business. I, I left school fairly young at fifteen. I've always been in the, the supply chain and logistics field, although I was a forklift driver at the start. So I basically had my own warehouse to store yeah. all of my, my toys in, which was dangerous. Which was probably one of the only benefits of the job. Right? So yeah, uh, so <laughs> certainly it wasn't the salary. So I, I was um, eventually, uh, uh, you know, I got I got into to, to, to more, you know, the, 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 again they were cheap then, yeah. So uh, in two thousand and six, I got an opportunity to to do a banger rally, which was called the Mongol Rally. I don't know if you've ever it heard rings of a bell. The idea was to buy a, a, a car for less than one hundred and fifty pounds, <laughs> and the rally went from Hyde Park to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. So that's about ten thousand miles, roughly. Wow. Um, and there's an easy way and there's a hard way. Uh, the easy way is to to go through Ukraine, go into Russia. Uh, you go north a bit and you go across the main motorway in Russia, and then you can drop down into. That, I'm making that sound a bit easier. It's not that easy, but you can drop down into to from Irkutsk, which is the border town. You can drop down into Mongolia and then get down to Ulaanbaatar fairly easily. The other way to do it is the really interesting way, which is what I did, which was sort of go semi like the Silk Route, which was uh, you know Iran. Iraq, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, through all the stands, back into <laughs> Russia, and then back down. So uh, there was about 12 countries, um, and uh, I did it in a, an old uh, 1988 Volkswagen Polo. Um, awesome. And, uh, really did you have a navigator? Uh, you're not allowed GPS, no. Uh, no, no, but like a guy? A woman? No, no, there was no, no. backup. No, okay. no backup. No, so, so the whole thing about the Mongol rally was that they were, and this was the first one. I think we're still doing it now. 2006 was the first time they did it. And it was about bringing adventure back into to, to banger rallies and, and, and that sort of thing. So okay. the, the, whole, the whole, there was 200 um, cars that went on the rally, but you weren't together because you, no GPS, no route, no backup, no support. And there was a, a big party in Prague the the third night, so you could get to Prague quite quite easily from from Hyde Park in London. Yeah, uh, and then we all set off from Prague, went our own separate ways. Um, for example, I bought a map of of central uh, Central Asia and Mongolia uh, from the the news agents before I went, and <laughs> the map was the size of a normal map, so. Really, the scale wasn't what I needed, but I didn't realize that. <laughs> I didn't realize that at the time. So you sort of had to just find your way and fix your car as you went along. And there was a, 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 a massive amount of sort of, I don't know, uh, crossing the borders was interesting because you had, you know, they were asking for bribes. They were, were, were taking all the stuff out of your car. Yeah. You know, I, this one guy in Russia took my iPod and uh, things like that, you know. Um, but, but the interesting thing was it was all about, uh, you know, fixing your own car as you go along, driving it sympathetically, but also making progress because it took six weeks as it was and you didn't want to take eight. Yeah. Um, and so it was a bit of a race, although races aren't allowed. And uh, also a lot of resilience and, and psychological. Uh, if you didn't have that, you would have had it by the end or you would have probably have given up. Yeah. So only 40 teams made it out of 200. Wow. And uh, yeah, got to the, got to the, got to Ulaanbaatar. So, uh, that was 2006. So what car did you take on your first Bongo rally? So the Mongol rally, that that was a polo. So it cost me a hundred. Oh, quid. the polo. Yeah. yeah it cost me a hundred quid and you weren't allowed to modify it. But the only thing I did to it was I put in, you know, the rubber bumpers you get for your uh, springs when you have a caravan. Oh, uh, yeah. 
Um, in the old days, I don't know if you still do that because I don't have a caravan, but you used to get rubber bungs to put in the bottom so that the suspension didn't bottom out when you were towing your caravan. Right. So I bought four of those. They were like five pounds each or something, and I put them in the the shock uh, the shocks. Uh, I filled the radiator with rad weld, and um, I, you know, I, I serviced the car, and basically that was it. No, no preparation other than that. I went with the clothes that I was wearing, and uh, yeah. And any, how many spare tires and stuff like that? So four four spare wheels with tires on. Yeah. And halfway there in Kazakhstan, uh, all four wheels that were on the car were dented and leaking air, and all four wheels on the roof rack were dented and not usable. So wow. So that's the that's the difficult thing when you're you're off road without an off roader because it just dents the wheels, you know, and then without going into too much detail, because it's probably not that interesting, but when you get to Mongolia, uh, you know, it's a big country and there's hardly any paved roads. So probably we only had to do about, from memory, about a thousand kilometers in Mongolia hmm. to get down to Yulan Bator. But none of that was, was proper paved roads. So you're digging your car out of sand uh, maybe twice or three times a day and you're only able to do like 40Ks a day. So that's one of the time consuming parts and you get bogged all the time. So yeah, it's all different, you know, your cultures, climate, safety is a concern because uh, I took a tent, but I ended up sleeping in the car every night because I was too scared to sleep outside because it's very dangerous in places like Kazakhstan. And, yeah. Um, and then left the car there, donated it to charity, left the car there. And uh, yeah, flew back Aeroflot from from uh, Yulan Bator, which took another week to get back. <laughs> so yeah, amazing. So that was two thousand six car. So 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 that got me more into rallies, but I wanted to do something a bit more luxurious. So then I started. I was earning reasonable money, so I had a 60, uh, 69 E type Roadster that I restored. Um, wow! Took, took that to a lot of European rallies, uh, car rallies down the south of France, stuff like that. Then I got a five fifty a Ferrari five fifty Maranello, a grey one that was a little bit high mileage, bit beat up, and uh, you know at this time I had a, a bit more budget, but I was probably spending money on fuel for that Ferrari before I was putting food on the table, you know. So <laughs> I was losing weight and enjoying myself with the car, you know, at the same time. So I feel that way about the Porsche. I mean, it just it just guzzles fuel. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I and I very early days. Uh, I realized this and, and my tactic was, so I, I went from, I've still got it a little, uh, a little, uh, Merc, uh, what is it? An A200 diesel. So it yep. can go 900 kilometers on a tank. Uh, and that cost me, let's say $70 to fill up a, a 50 liter tank, if that's what it is. Um, and then I get this three liter Porsche from 78 that just guzzles fuel. Yeah. And so I'm filling it up the first time and spent like i filled up the whole tank and well over a hundred dollars and one thing i realized was that it's got an 80 liter tank and then I, i'm thinking well that kind of makes sense because these days the engines is quite efficient you probably only need a 50 liter tank even yeah, some right. big even some big suvs have a 50 liter tank yeah um but back then you put in you know every year they bring out or every couple of years they bring out a, a larger engine essentially it required a larger fuel tank yep. uh, every time. So my tactic is that I put $70 worth of fuel in uh, the Porsche and I don't worry about how much a litre it costs. Uh, I don't I don't worry about how much, how many litres actually go in it. I just put 70 bucks in every time I go and that makes me feel like I'm not 
spending too much money on fuel, but in, secretly I know that I am. Yeah, and, and I think if you think about fuel price or, or fuel use too much, it takes away from the enjoyment of totally, the absolutely, and, yeah. and in reality, um, when it comes to environmentalism or any of those um, sort of um, issues, uh, you, you, you're still much more environmentally friendly because we're driving things that have already been created and uh, yeah, using them to the full potential. I love all those arguments, Jamie. It's like yes, you know, this thing's been going for four and a half decades, whereas most cars these now right. these days only last about 10 years. Yeah. Um, and the other argument I love is I love driving next to or behind a Tesla because I think the more Teslas there are on the road, the more they're offsetting my car. So I feel good about that too. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, and I think also um, the good thing about Australia is that the fuel is half price from Europe. So that's also, um, but the cars are double. So Yeah, <laughs> actually double. touching on something you said before because mm. of the amount of... Um, MR2s you mentioned and all that sort of stuff. Mm. One thing that I was talking with a, a, a guy I'd not spoke, I'd never met before. He rocked up to a Cars and Coffee on Sunday driving a Boxster S. Oh yeah, uh, and I'm quite pro Boxster compared to. Yeah, I am too. I've, I've had a couple and fabulous car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've still got this dream that I'll I'll buy a five thousand dollar five thousand pound Boxster over in the in in the UK yep. and drive it around Europe because and and as I was explaining to him. One thing that Australia has always suffered from is because of our small population, uh, you know, everything has a supply issue. And I'm talking to the supply guy now, right? So, you know, we just don't have that many cars running around, old cars. Yeah. Yeah. So they're expensive or they're more expensive than, you know, as you said, you could pick up an MR2 for a thousand pounds or something, right? Yeah. He's, so he's, yeah. yeah, we just don't have the cars here, the, yeah. the volume I, of them. Yeah. And I think, I think the other, the other thing that, sort of related but I, I would say now that in, in Europe or, or certainly in the UK I, c I can probably still speak for that market that what I would be buying now is like uh, the next the next obsolescence which is going to be like boxy 1990s early 90s sort of saloons like the the fast Volvos uh, <laughs> the Volvo wagons yeah, uh, picking them up for not just Volvos, but the big Audis, uh, you, you know, the gas guzzlers, stuff like that, because nobody wants them there, yeah. and they're completely underappreciated, and they're fabulous. I mean, an S8, for example. I mean, here you would probably pay. I don't even know how much for for, for an Audi S8, but you could pick up a nice A8 or S8, you know, souped up, uh, pretty cheaply, and that's yeah. a lot of car for the money, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very jealous of, you know, my mate who lives over in London. He bus he buys occasionally a nice car, and it's half the price of what we pay for it here. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I moved here in 2012. Yeah, 2012, and the last I had a car allowance with my previous role, but I had quite a senior position when I when I left the UK. But it was a good car allowance, but it wasn't crazy. And uh, my last company car was a 911 uh, Turbo. Yeah, so, <laughs> and I was doing. I was doing a thousand, yeah, I was doing a thousand miles a week, snow, rain, sleet, all weathers in that car. And I did about yeah. 150,000 miles. Yeah. And it was absolutely would, would you yeah. Would you say that's your favorite car that you've owned or? Uh, no, my favorite car that I've owned is the, the Ferrari 550 Maranello. It's a perfect Ferrari, I think. And I'm gutted, I could say this about a lot, but I, I think generally I, I come to things a bit early and I can see the, I, I'm quite, I don't know if I'm good, but judging what's going to, 
be valuable and become desirable in the future. And I always knew that, you know, the 550 Maranello was, you know, a very pure design. Some people don't like it, but I love it. And manual uh, V12, naturally aspirated and very much undervalued at the time. I paid £20,000 for it. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and they're trade they're changing hands for two hundred. There's one at the pounds. moment on Good. Dutton's, which is a place in Melbourne that sells them, uh, that deals in exotic cars. Yeah, yeah. Three hundred and forty thousand Australian. But th- this is a this is an Enzo yeah, pack, what, so red on on tan with a manual. Yeah, mine was um, mine was uh, grey. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Grey, silvery grey because. Because frankly speaking, uh, I would never drive a, a red or yellow Ferrari. It just uh, I like to be understated, and yeah. a grey Ferrari with a red interior is just perfection. I think. Very yeah, nice. manual Ferrari has been going gangbusters so, the last couple of years. Yeah, and uh, you know the yeah, and and they're beautifully designed. They're actually the engines and drivetrains for me are over engineered. That they're they're indestructible almost. But it's all of the fixtures and fittings and interior that still, I think, still to this day lets them down. You know, they, they, I don't want to racial stereotype, but the Italian electrics and then the, 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 the interiors just... Yeah, I've uh, heard the interior quickly. plastics are not um, great. No, but that goes no, for anything no. in that, like, 90s to 2000s period. Yeah, I've, I've got a guy that, that helps me with some of my cars, and he was detailing a... And it was only a 2000, I think it was a 2014. Uh, maybe it was a 14 or 15, 430. I think it was a 430. And even it had all the sticky plastic. Yeah, 430 would be, so, actually, I don't know when they ended at the 430s. 430. So it's no surprise that that's a Panin Farina design, right? And no. um, I mean, I wasn't into Ferraris, but I can tell you, I would guess that around the same time or a similar time, uh, Peugeot did a 406. Oh, there, was a, there was a yeah. Panin Farina design. Yeah. And it's actually, it's like the poor man's version of your car. You know, yeah. it's not dissimilar. No, it's, it's, it's stunning. And, and and everything that came out, I mean, I even had a Fiat uh, X19, you know, the Fiat X19. Well, see, that's another thing. There are certain brands that we just don't get uh, for cars. I, that I think I know what it is. The X19 sure is the Fiat right. that's like the, the, is it mid-engine or front-engine, but it looks like a sports car? It's uh, it's probably mid or rear engined, and it's a little sports car with a. With looks a, a little more triumphy, tar- right? Target top. Sorry. Yeah, looks a little bit yeah. more like a Triumph. Yeah, yeah, it sort of resembles a, a. It's a bit more refined design than the Triumph, but yeah, it yeah, resembles sure. A Triumph, and yeah. uh, that was a Pininfarina, and uh, yeah. and the uh, my current car is a Maserati Quattroporte, and that's a Pininfarina. Um, yes. Beautiful. I mean breathtakingly beautiful shape in my view did you say your current car was a quadruporte yeah yeah and do you think they're they're underrated jamie absolutely i do and undervalued yeah Yeah, i do absolutely absolutely but i mean yeah yeah there's some pitfalls i mean the one i have is the facelift which is a 2010 11 yeah uh it's also got the zf auto box and it's the 4.7, which is uh, the 4.7 V8, which is the better, I think, better engine. But if it was, I, I did have one in the UK, which cost me nothing. And it was the semi-automatic Ferrari box, the smaller engine and the non-facelift. And 
I loved the thing, but it was a lot of hassle, yeah? But this car, you can do anything with it, yeah? Mm. But it's still yeah. got sticky plastics inside, which are fixed, but, you know, still has that issue, which is ridiculous yeah. for a car that came in at, what, $300,000 when it was new? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what they were when they were new in Australia, um, but certainly, you know, I've seen them between... I, I think I've seen stuff even as low as 40 and yeah, obviously yeah. you can pay more, but I look at those sort of cars and just go, that's got to be undervalued, right? Yeah, it can't yeah, be, yeah. it can't be that bad. You know, it's got to be a great experience, but you know, it's like, can I really, can I really pull the, the trigger on that? I guess I, I do, I do balk a little bit at the servicing. I wonder if yeah, that's, that's where it would. That's where you know, some cars, why they're quite cheap is there certain yeah. things that, the servicing of it is just too much money to justify the price. But I think yeah. I, th I think that the good thing about Maserati in general is that the reputation they have is worse than the reality. So therefore, the market perception, yeah, uh, is you know they, they should be price discounted in the market because of some of the unique hassles you get with any Italian car. But the, 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 they're massively undervalued, even considering that. And I I would say that. A facelift QP, um, uh, anything you know, forty to sixty thousand dollars if it's a really good one, low case, all of that. Uh, it's it's incredible value for money. It's a hand built car, you know, almost. Yeah. So what are the what are the thirty two hundred GTs like? Uh, well, that 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 car's the bane of my existence because um, I'm kind of obsessed with it because of the boomerang rear lights. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you know that that I think that's one of the most perfect designs ever, almost. And they had to change those lights because of European crash crash wrecks. Okay. So, so they went to some sort of Toyota looking catalog light, which yeah, is hideous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but those boomerang rear lights just are amazing. But the thirty two hundred is really, you know, I suppose if you bought one brand new, it's a, it's a fast car, very fast car, very powerful car, very nice. But even by my standards, too difficult, too many issues, uh, right. gearboxes, uh, everything, yeah, like electrics. Whereas the 4200 is much better car all round. Right. Um, and then the Grand Sport is better again, which is just the, the next version of the 4200, same, same yeah. engine as the Quadricotti. But uh, nowhere near the, the, the class or style of the, the boomerang rear lights that were on the yeah. 3200. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of them well under a hundred thousand, if not well under, you know, seventy, really. Oh. To choose from. Okay, yeah, now yeah. I know why they have transmission issues. They were originally yeah. equipped with a BTR four-speed automatic, which means nothing to pretty much everyone, but uh, Australians that are into their Falcons from the nineties and early two thousands. Um, oh, same yeah. gearbox. It's an Australian-built gearbox, and it's a. It's not a very good gearbox. I'm surprised to find out that it was in a Maserati. Yeah, I, th I think as well at the, at the beginning, you know, when they, they did that 3200, they were still owned by Ferrari, so they couldn't compete. And the budget, you know, all, all of these budget constraints and, right. uh, you know, doing things on a budget. And, and it was, it, it was a I understand it was a difficult car to launch and it wasn't properly executed. And then when they were sold, uh, that's, when they managed to come up with the 4200, which was much better overall quality and, and, and design. But 
I just love that rear end. Yeah. I'm with you, mate. I think that it's almost worth buying just for that those rear lights, especially when you compare them to what they were re replaced with. It's just so pedestrian. Yeah. Um, and my my view is very much that, that driving the car is only sort of 25% of the pleasure for me. Yeah. Another 25% comes from looking after it and cleaning it and, and detailing it. And, yeah. and, and then the other 50% is probably... Looking at it when you when you walk away from it, turning back. At and, it. Yeah, yeah, and having and I, you know having something like that in your sitting room and just looking at it would be would be. I know. Completely viable for me. I know. I would definitely live in a garage if I could. <laughs> so yeah, I, and and that's the thing with the motorbikes and you know it's just uh, there's something very emotional about it, isn't there? Yeah, and that's what draws me towards Italian stuff now. Yeah, I mean, for someone who doesn't even have a bike license and. I have said for many years that I, I probably never would because I, I fear for my life. But, um, you know, I just love the look of bikes. I think they're beautiful. Yeah, especially Italian uh, bikes like Ducatis and, and uh, you know, Aprias and, and things like this. They're just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, no, the Italians know design. They've got a great eye. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the Germans can make stuff well. Definitely, yeah. 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 Very nice. I th I, but I think I think if you look back in nineties and two thousands cars, performance cars especially, um, the Germans have traded on that reputation of build quality for God knows how long. But mm, actually, yes. you know, go back to the you know, the what would it be, the E sixty M five, uh the thirty six and then the forty six M three, they all had their own really in you know, individual issues, build faults, design faults, no worse than any Italian car. I yeah think, it's, it's the same just, it's exactly what you said before you know you get a reputation for something and it's pretty hard to shake yeah yeah and when you're building sort of high performance cars uh there's always going to be issues i think yeah uh, i don't blame them for that I, th I think it's just comes with the territory if you if if you can't either put up with it or afford to fix it you probably should go and buy something a bit cheaper well this is the problem this is a classic consumer problem you know we expect stuff to be so reliable and we expect stuff to be so cheap yeah. that that what are you going to get i mean if you want it cheap you're going to get crap or it's only going to have a life of so long um and you know that reliability thing that equals boring as well you know yeah yeah so, and, and and for me reliability is measured by whether uh has the car ever left you stranded have you not been able to fix it you know, have you had to stay in a hotel? Well, okay, maybe it's let you down once or twice. It's not very reliable, but honestly, most of the cars I've had throughout the years, maybe because I know what I'm doing a little bit mechanically, but, you know, I've never been stranded. I've had all sorts of issues, but I've been able to fix them. Yeah. And I guess with an old car as well, people are like, oh, isn't that really expensive to maintain and stuff? I'm like, well, you know, yeah, it costs twice as much to look after it as it does a new car, but that's because... You know, every six, I've had it four years, sorry, two years, and I've replaced the fuel pump, the uh, the ignition coil, uh, the distributor's being rebuilt as we speak. Yeah. So, you know, every six months, something that's 40 years old okay. needs to be yeah. rebuilt or replaced. And I own a 10-year-old car, and it needs something replaced in about the same time frame. Yeah, yeah right. But, the, but the, thing with, the thing, what I like about, Porsche and uh, it's, it's happened to me. I've never had one that's that old, although I would love one. The oldest one I had was an 87 um, turbo bodied um, R88 911. 
um, which had the had the wing and the uh, it was a G50 gearbox. So I think that was 88 or 89, yeah. 3.2. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's apparently the one to have, but that's that good. That is cool. the one to have, but that's yeah. the one. That, that's another one that got away because I didn't pay a lot for it, and I I know it's worth an absolute uh, fortune. But yeah. anyway, um, but you know the thing the, the thing with Porsche is that that they're, they're sort of appreciating at the same rate as they're costing you money. Yeah. Yeah. Like exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's a, it's an investment. I mean, I think you'll definitely come out ahead if you bought that four years ago, no matter what happens. Yeah, I bought it two years ago, and I, and it was and it wasn't certainly it was one of the cheapest ones available because I had a budget. But um, you're absolutely right. Like you know, I've even got in my mind that sometime in the next five to ten years that I'll do a pretty significant tear down, take the windows out, replace all the rubbers while the windows are out. I may as well get the car taken back to bare metal and resprayed and oh, while that's and while that's happening the engine's out you may as well rebuild the engine so that could be forty thousand dollars worth of work oh, it'll easy. still be worth it'll still be worth you know easy. market value if not le- yeah. less than market value yeah uh, so that's nice to know it's a bit like housing in australia like unless you're unless you're going to sell your house in australia and move to i don't know some other country the fact is you're always going to have to probably spend the same amount of money as you get for your house. So it's all great that it's gone from $1 million to $2 million. Yeah. But you're going to have to spend $2 million on A your A bit of advice, anyway. if you are planning on yeah. restoring it, start looking for all the parts you want to restore it with now because it will take you that time to find some of them. Yeah. 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 Some, and also they said, they said well, the, the parts might actually go up in price between now and whenever it is that you decide to do it. So yeah, I, th- I think as well the other the other aspect that's that's really um, showing itself more and more in the car market, especially with classic cars, it's not just supply and demand driven. I think that without going too deep into the economics, I think that it's because of the quantitative easing and the, and the money printing. Uh, there's more money around, and yeah. uh, there's more money getting spent, and the price is inflated. Not even uh, again, due to supply and demand, just because of cheap money and 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 you know so much new money, which devalues yeah. everybody else's money. Yeah. So I think I think that's a concern because uh, it's harder and harder to get into these things. You know, I think I, th- I think um, the the price prohibitive, and yeah, really cars like, cars like that. I would love you know I've got, I've got a, a eighteen month old and a, a ten a ten week old and oh wow. Two boys, and I, I would love, I would love my boys to experience these things, but I don't know if it's going to be possible. You know. Yeah, it's look, it's it's the same with watches. You're absolutely right. Uh, there's a mix of people now. There's probably three types of people. There's the people that are relatively um, new to the watch world and maybe the car world as well, who are buying literally for investment purpose. Yeah. So it goes into a safe or it goes into a, a storage facility for the cars. Um, for however many years until it gets sold, and that's it. There's there's been no driving pleasure at all um, derived from owning that car. It's been a pure investment, and I think that's the same with some watch people and pet watches at the moment. And then yeah. I think you've got also another a, a, a league of people who buy it for the brand. Uh, at, again, greater than perhaps the well, the pleasure they get out of it is because of the brand, not because of the actual car or watch. Um, which I guess is a is a form of pleasure. Um, so yeah. hence a form of legitimacy. So it's, all, that it's also a form of narcissism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, maybe. That's what that's what Tag Heuer's entire brand's built on, right? 
possible. possible. <laughs> I love Hoya. I love takeaway. But um, yeah, it's uh, and then you've got you know your old, not old people, but the the people that buy things because they love them, whether that's you know because the brand's cheap or it's expensive or doesn't really matter. It's because you see you know you get pleasure out of it. So. There's yeah. all of that happening. You're right. So add the money thing, the availability of money, and add those two extra groups of people, um, and they add short supply, uh, yeah. and that's what you've that's what you've got the Australian car and watch market at the moment. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I heard someone. Uh, oh, actually, mm. not someone. Uh, Adrian from Bark and Jack say um, early on when he was collecting, and he had a lot of Rolex, and people asked him, "Why did you only buy Rolex?" And he said, it's because I can only afford to buy Rolex, which sounds like an oxymoron. Uh Yeah. But if you can only afford... Back then. Like if you're striving to buy a luxury watch, for example, and you're stretching to buy it, well, buying a Rolex like a Samarin or something is probably a pretty good idea because if anything happens and you need to sell it, you get back what you pay for it. Well, that's that's how he looked at it anyway. Well, look, and to be fair, Rolexes are fairly robust. So, you know, you're not going to suffer perhaps some servicing issues or costs that you might from some of the really high-end brands. Um, uh, But also, going back then, Rolex weren't as expensive or as hard to get your hands on um, as they are now. And there's the same thing with the watches. Like, uh, yeah, you know, you start buying $50,000 watches, $100,000 watches, you know the servicing of those watches is is three to five thousand. But it's it's also like so um, it's much like people that buy Bugattis or whatever. You're not buying a Bugatti as your only car. You already have multiple others at that point. So if you're buying a fifty thousand dollar watch, yeah, yeah, you're not yeah. going to wear it as your only watch. I wouldn't think. So servicing is not as much of an mm. issue. And also, it's like a boat. Like you've got to take into account the buy price and the maintenance price, right? So, yeah, it's like, um, I mean, if you, if, you, if you look at some of the guys that, 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 that get a bit rich and then buy, buy into, um, you know, like a, a nice uh, Riv, you know, Rivera uh, yacht yeah. you know, made in Brisbane, right? I yeah. mean, you've got to factor um, 10% of the purchase price per year just for yep. storage and maintenance. Yeah. And uh, that becomes a significant expense. I mean, it's like we say when we buy... Uh, not now because I know that Ferrari does seven year warranty and seven year free maintenance. I think for on on new cars, but um, okay. The, the joke back home used to be that when you you know that's a basically your purchase price for the Ferrari is a down payment on the on the maintenance. Ah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. and that was that was probably sort of true, but um, it was yeah. worth every dollar. Yeah. What I love about boats and what I love about something I've always said, which is you know money is relative. So you know a, a three hundred. And fifty dollar Dan Henry is a lot of money to some people, just like three hundred and fifty thousand dollars is a lot of money to some people, and to some people, you know, thirty five thousand dollars is not a lot of money. So, you know, these boats, I mean, some of them are so big, you know, you got to crew them, right? You got to pay people full time right. wages to yeah. Yeah. to look after this thing, and imagine filling it up with petrol. Oh, and also, um. I mean, I often think to myself, how much money would I need to have in the bank liquid in order to spend that much money on a, on, on a boat yeah. like that? Because yeah. if it's 1.5 mil for the, for, for the, you know, a conservative, you know, that's not a super yacht, that's just a no. nice rack. Yeah. A cruiser, yeah. If it's 1.5 mil, 
how much in reality would you need to have in order to spend it on something that's so frivolous? Exactly. And my exactly. answer would be a hell of a lot. But actually, I don't know if that's true because probably all of them are financed. Yeah. Yeah. Look, yeah, again, that was unfortunately or fortunately something that my parents sort of beat into me when I was a child, the difference between owning something and, and financing something. I went to a, a nice school that, and I'm an only child, so my parents both worked their asses off to send me there. And we'd rock up in, in a Mazda and there'd be like Mercedes and, and BMWs everywhere. And that's when they tried to explain to me the difference between owning something and financing something. I'm, I'm still not convinced that one is necessarily better than the other, but obviously there is a Well, there is certainly a if you own your own business, financing works a lot better if you can write off the cost of your car as a part of the business. Yeah. Yeah, there is that. But I think it is questionable to finance, you know, in terms of, um, just fundamentals, it's definitely questionable to finance a depreciating asset, yeah, because you're paying interest and the value is going down. But mm. I think it makes sense now, especially when interest is so low and money so cheap. If if you if you're going to buy a you know like for example, uh, you could finance a Rolex, right? Because you're going to pay the interest, but you're not going to lose any value in depreciation. So. Mm. Well, look, I have a really dear friend now uh, who I've met through in Melbourne through the Porsche group, um, and I won't name him, but he's a liquidator, essentially. Mm -hmm. Lovely, lovely, lovely guy. And he has told me more than one story about people who um, there's a real grey line between their business and their personal lives and their personal... Um, Finances. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Their, their houses, their cars, and their boats and everything, right? Yeah, so, it's all part of the business, essentially. Yeah, it's, like, it's all kind of okay just when everything's going well, but the moment something goes a little off plan, like the business, you know, dips a little bit, it all goes to shit, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's not a great situation to be in either. But um, but I'm sure it's easy to, to not worry about it while things are going well. It actually reminds me of the... Um, the Wolf of Wall Street stuff now because the guy's <laughs> on his boat and you know it's all going fine until the IRS turn up or whoever yeah, it was. Uh, Jordan's got good uh, testing cars as well. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Jamie, what would your dream no, car be? Uh, look, realistically, it would have to be something that is um, because I'm passionate about the sort of well, not, not, not old as in you know, 70s onwards for me is probably my era for cars. So I, I like the idea of the Singer Porsches, yeah. Um, but I also really uh, love the fact that there's businesses, mainly in the UK, I think that you know they buy old uh, Range Rovers and restore them to to, to brand new. Yeah. You, you know, I've I've got that typical, uh, well, it's quite typical in the UK working class attitude to um, uh, Range Rover and Land Rover. I mean, my daily cars are Land Rover. I'm, I'm a Range Rover guy from my daily, even though. That's a car for for sort of uh, rich people. We love those cars because they're British and they're very unique and special, yeah. and it makes you feel good. And same with Jack, you know. So and I'm, surely there's an element of you made it right if you can have one of those. If you're yeah, from, a, a, from a little bit, I think it's a little bit sort of working guy, you know. Because yeah. the, people, the, the people that are, are driving them are actually like used car dealers, estate agents, uh, you know, people that have come from relatively humble. But yeah, it's a different dynamic in the UK, you know. So there is a bit of that going on, but yeah. I would probably be looking at 
uh, either singer for a 911, a, a special one, unique, you know, custom for me, or um, in reality, uh, going back and getting a Jaguar XJ, you know, the Mark II XJ6 or XJ12, but um, the completely re-engineered ones with the modern engine, with the modern transmission. Uh, but but looking because because I'm not so worried about the provenance of the of of the internals. I just want to have a modern version of a beautiful classic like that. Yeah. So, so something like that, I would say, would be my dream. But you're talking quarter of a mil, you know, half half yeah. a mil. I, I don't even know what a singer goes for now, but it's half a million bucks US. Yeah, easily. Yeah. At least now, I think they're probably because of COVID tax gone up twice as twice that as well. Plus, you know, there's only so many. Surely nine six fours you can get your hands on as donor yeah, cars. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And and, and he is I can't remember the gentleman's name, the English guy that, that that owns that, but he's um he's got incredible taste. He's got an amazing eye and incredible taste. Yeah, some of the things he's done. Yeah, I'm with you. I think for me, it's you know I love the um I I I've a recent habit has got into watching YouTube on my TV late at night and starting off with some Porsche latest Porsche video and then you just see what happens from there and yep. I got into some top 10 you know cars of all time or classic cars or whatever and the e-type was definitely on there obviously the 911 and there were plenty of others as well and they were all great all great uh contenders but um I agree like I think for me it's just the it's the beauty in the line of it from the outside of course the driving experience would be a major part of it like if I jumped in one of these beautiful cars and it was an absolute dog then that would probably ruin it for me but yeah um I, I'm not so precious about what's in it either. Like I think, um, I think certainly in the Porsche world in Australia, um, I've been very lucky with my first car or my only car that it's Australian delivered, matching numbers, all that jazz, right? Yeah. But but now that I have one, I I, I couldn't care less. I, I I think you know. In fact, you could put together uh, an ideal Porsche that had different era body, engine, right. gearbox, yeah. etc. And it would be I a hear better the car. same with like um, um, a lot of Ferrari owners. The first one you buy is red, and then from there, that's when you that's when like the the standard yeah. Ferrari owner then will branch out and get the different colors. Yeah, yeah, I th- yeah. yeah. I think I think it's uh, the only thing that's affecting is 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 your residual because you know the market takes that into consideration. But in reality, why would the you know it doesn't make any sense really the matching numbers thing. Uh, yeah. As long as it's not stolen, I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. No, no, it's, and you know, the, a, a thing I see here a lot is it's better to get an Australian delivered car because obviously ones in Europe have been driven on snow and salt or whatever. Oh, true. Uh, true. You know, maybe, they're, maybe. They're all, uh, all galvanised, right? Yeah, them. well, exactly. They're meant to be from, I think from my year, from 78 onwards. Oh, um, from but, 78, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but. You're right. It doesn't matter. Like if you get the car inspected and there's rust or there's no rust, that, that's that's just what that car is at that point in time. Yeah, that's so right. It doesn't really matter what its history is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. No, I just think uh, it's a funny thing. And, and again, it comes back to the argument. Oh, well, when you sell it, it's better to have that. Well, I'm not going to sell it. Or that's or for me, that's not what it's about. It's about the, the experience that I'm having with it. Yeah, um, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think... Uh... You, you you've got a, a son, right? You've got a, a yeah, kid. Matthew. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, I think I think for him, that's going to be the most amazing memories, and uh, you know, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's like uh, I can only imagine what that would be like for your dad to have a nine eleven and drive around in it. You know, that's just amazing. Yeah, so good. I've, I mean, I meet I meet uh, Porsche guys now 
who's who had that story of when they were a child like yeah my dad used to drive me around and yeah. it makes me feel really cool so that that Matthew's getting that experience which of course he does enjoy but he won't appreciate it like like I know he will when he's older um the problem is he's going to have to fight off his older sister for um for the car when they get older so I'm not sure who's going to win out there so you got a t- you got a ten week old Jamie? Yeah, yeah. I thought you were opening um, some whiskey there, but then I realised it was the little little man. So two boys, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, two boys. Yeah, yeah. very One cool. Is, uh, I'm surprised. I'm surprised your better half has actually let you do a podcast with a ten week old in the house. Well, yeah, I think I think um, she, she's made an exception. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but it's uh, and it's, it's a relatively large house. I don't know why he has to be there, but he's, um, <laughs> he's uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So two two young ones, and I'm trying to pass the passion for. I've already started a bit of a watch collection for those the, the two boys, and uh, you know I, I try and get them involved in the cars as much as I can. And I've got a little uh, Vespa that I, you know, mess around with them, and you know, yeah. so I'm, I'd like to get them a trail bike and get them out on some of the trails and stuff. Well, you sound like a man's man, a bit like Rob, and I'm sure, regardless of, regardless, your your boys. You know, you'll, there'll be a lot of you that rubs off on them just through the experiences that you, you, um, you know, you have with them. I hope so. Um, yeah. Certainly, the car thing's a, a big thing for me because I'm not a manly man, and you know, I, I always tried to help out at, at footy and stuff like that. But I've I've got you know two left feet and two left hands and stuff, so I just do my best. But certainly with the car, you know, just with Matthew driving in it with me and. I try and drag him along to a few things and oh, that's um, nice. yeah. yeah yeah it's yeah. definitely really lovely as a as a father to be able to do those things with your Absolutely. son yeah um and it's different with girls as well but um it's funny sophie uh tries to suggest when she can it's like oh should we take the porsche and can i drive and i'm like yeah yeah that's cool we do that <laughs> i kind of and i always kind of like having the peas on the porsche um i'm in the obviously in the the passenger seat but um yeah, yeah, she's doing it. She enjoys it. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah, I agree with the dream car. That that would be that would yeah. be great as well yeah. to be able Definitely. to do that. But... Yeah. 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 All right. On to the dream drive. What are you driving? Where are you driving? Mm. What are you wearing? And what are you listening to? This is global, right, Jamie? I think for me, the, the, the probably the the, the, the the one of the only the few times that I felt um, really like uh, you know I've done something. Uh, excellent here and I've really you know I've made it type of thing and, and it's given me a good emotional feeling was in when I had the e-type and I took it down to the south of France and that's a bit of a dream you know I had it restored uh, took it over on the ferry you know I uh, went down down to the the uh, down state in Nice went to the Cannes Film Festival so that was probably what that's probably one of my favorite memories Lovely. Yeah. Um, it was a red e-type red e-type it wasn't yep. perfect um, because I wanted to have it uh, original sort of restored but looks unrestored yeah so i still had a wooden steering wheel that flexes a lot and it was a four-speed gearbox with no synchro so it was a bit of a pig to drive to be honest but when you're you're effectively you know you're driving a piece of art you know in my view with any type especially the series one you know when they when they fucked up sorry yes yeah. when, yeah, yeah. when they fucked up with the series two um you know for the u.s market it was um the US market always made them look bad. Yeah, yeah, like, same with nine eleven, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, you know I'm a big fan of the nine two four. Sorry, the nine two eights, and then the nine two eight S four. I had one, and and you know they made that very ugly when it had all the concealed bumpers and everything. But yeah, anyway, so 
the, the, that would be the drive, yeah? That would be the drive. It's a beautiful, it's such a beautiful looking car. I mean, it's, I think I would have been far more aware of the E-Type uh, before I was the 911, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, maybe because they're, 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 they're more rare in Australia than a, than a Porsche. Uh, but, um, you know, they drive by and that nose is just so beautiful. And oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it must be amazing to drive with such a long nose sitting in front of you like that. It's hard, yeah, it's amazing from the from the driver's seat, and they've got vents. The Series One's got vents in the bonnet and everything. And uh, mine had a leaper, but they didn't come with a, a leaper, which is a bit tacky, you know, on the on the front of the bonnet. Um, but honestly, um, it's a pre almost. Mine was a '69, but if you if you look at the lineage of Jag and and, and how they were always broke and uh, going out of business, and William Lyons designed the E-Type in his front front garden. You know, yeah. and, and uh, he, he just naturally looked at how the how the light reacted. Um, but it was a pre, the underlying chassis and, and drivetrain was a pre-war design, so right. you're driving something that's very very old. old fashioned yeah. and difficult to handle. And you know, at seventy miles an hour, the the, 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 the gearbox is maxed out. You know, <laughs> and you have mind you, I saw much. someone getting one sideways at Goodwood today on a on a video that was oh, sent, yeah. an Instagram yeah. video. Yeah, 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 yeah. Far too easy because the the, the wheelbase and all of that. It was yeah, quite quite difficult and severe weather. And when it rained, which it does a lot of in France, you know, and when it rained, the roof was absolutely no good. So <laughs> you got soaked, and yeah, yeah. But I mean, it got me started uh, on. Well, that was the end actually with the Jags. But you know, the XGS was sort of the spiritual successor to the Type, which is a fabulous car as well. You know, underrated. So. Nice. So yeah. you're driving. You're driving that down in France as your dream drive. The 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 E Type, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's a pick to drive, I would still take it down there. You know, if you want to, if you want to to, to go down to uh, the film festival and you know, yeah, pick up somebody that looks like Sophia Loren, you you have to be in the E Type. Yeah. That's the southern coast of France, isn't it? Along there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been to Nice and a few other places down there. It's just lovely. Yeah, fabulous. Nice, Marseille, and that's pretty rough, you know, like around there. But uh, Cannes itself is is beautiful. Yeah. Um, And they just live, they live life, you know, they know how to do it. And what watch would you be wearing while you're you're doing this? Uh, Probably a Newman Daytona. I hate to be, I hate to be uh, predictable, but. What sort of year? Early. Yeah. I think, I think uh, probably the best value one I could get. (laughs) Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. I thought you were going to go with a Jaguar Bremont. Ah, uh, I've looked at that before, but it's just a bit tacky for me. You know, it's a bit too obvious. I don't mind Bremont. I I I like what they're doing. I like I, um. I, I like the the quality is amazing, but I just don't like the ones they do that are brand aligned because it's just a bit tacky. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I don't. I mean, I think everything they do is kind of brand aligned. You know, obviously with the ejection seat. Um. Yeah, yeah, uh, the Martin Baker, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, the quality is definitely there. Again, I don't know if I assume the prices are set all over the world, but their their price point certainly has a lot of competition. I think if they were just a little bit a lower price point, better value, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that lot, they would. You get a lot of watch for the same price as a Bremer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But I love their store fitouts. Love oh, yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, even all the the straps, the the the, the detailing, the the, the hardware, yeah. the straps, the the key rings, the key, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, everything they do is done to a really high level and high quality. And the cases as well, the the, the watch cases are amazing. Yeah, the three piece yeah. case is just yeah. 
I was over at um, Henley Regatta in, um, where is that? Around Oxford or something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Bramont had a, a tent there. They were the sponsor. Uh, they had a special edition for the Henley Regatta for the rowers if you'd competed there. Um, but you know they do it. They do it really well wherever they're at. They're, you know their marketing and their story and their presentation. Yeah, that's it's all. Part that's of really it, what you're paying for, yeah, Brown, yeah. is their marketing. But it's not. It's not like a. You're paying for the name, but less so than like, um, Rolex, for example. You're paying for Bromont's yeah. name to stand out as someone that you're like, either like a, a military person or um, someone that goes out and does stuff, as opposed to. Um, yeah, Rolex, which is typically seen as like oh, sure. a a banker, someone that's just t- chasing a paycheck kind of thing, who's all about wealth and status. And they built a good brand yeah. image, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And equally, you're paying for that marketing, so you, so so the same can be said for Tag yeah. and and plenty of others. Yeah, Brightling. Yeah, I don't have sure. any issue with like Bremont or Tag's marketing from the point of view of Tag that is all about motorsport, which I love. Uh, and then Bremont yeah. partners with the armed, armed forces quite heavily, which I find really interesting. They go about it in quite an interesting way. Yeah. And what are you listening to? What music are you listening to in the JAG in the south of France? Oh, that's an embarrassing one. I mean, probably the, the, the music I follow the most. No, I, I don't listen to a lot of music now, but probably the person I've seen live most of all uh, is uh, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Yeah. I've been it's not embarrassing. Long. The boss is great. Yeah. Jeezy. Yeah, t- 22, 23 times I've lost count. Yeah. <laughs> That's him, a lot. Seen him all over the place, yeah. And he's a bit of a bit of a hero, although he's lost his way recently. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan of of Springsteen, and I've seen especially the European gigs because you know in Scotland when you go to a live event, it's a little bit different. You know, you've got people throwing drinks at each other, and there's always fights and stuff. Yeah. Whereas you go to Spain, you go to Paris. To see a band, you know, it's a different atmosphere, and the, the, you know the Europeans love Springsteen. So, yeah, I've seen them all over the place. So, yeah, probably probably one of the classic albums like The River or something like that, something melancholic and uh, suitably uh, uh, depressing. Yeah, I, I and talk like about that. value for money. I mean, that guy's sixty or seventy years old, and he puts in at least two hours, if not more. Right? He just oh, keeps going. No, no, three, three and a half. Three yeah. And a half. yeah, 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 yeah. He's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah he's great. Yeah, and and also he's a world, like as a songwriter he's underrated I think you know he's 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 absolutely uh, but again I'm I'm talking more about you know the old stuff seventies darkness on the edge of town uh, the river uh, things like that you know so that would be very it cool for me well he I mean I I like live music but again I don't know why maybe we just don't get that much of it but um, I've definitely seen the boss here in Melbourne and I oh, thought yeah. it was a great. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a great show. Mind you, the opening act was Hunters and Collectors. That was probably more the reason that I was there. But geez, I was I was impressed with the show that he put on. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And if if um if the big saxophonist uh, Clarence Clemens was was there, uh, he's, that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 also Stevie Van Zandt, he's guitarist, who's the guy from the Sopranos. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, just it's a big band too, isn't it? It's a great band. Yeah, They're all good. And, and you know, he doesn't tell them the set list before they start, so. They can actually play any one of his back catalogue from scratch. Right. Wow. They're an amazing band, yeah? That's amazing. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. Instagram recommendations, yes. Tom? Yes, Instagram recommendations. I'm trying to find one because uh, I, I had 
forgot. <laughs> have you got yours lined up, Jamie? Yes, I have. Yep. Oh, well, you go first because both Tom and I are struggling. Well, go I, don't for it. Guys, I don't know if you guys know this one already, but one of the guys that I always, you know, like if I was to lose all my other things that I follow, it would be this guy. And um, have you heard of this guy called Ted? Uh, yes. Ted yeah. Yes, I think I follow him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's, but, in, uh, he's in the Porsche probably, world, yeah, because he runs the Porsche um, fan. Uh, yeah, he runs sort of... He runs Type 7, which is a Porsche-backed, yeah, like magazine website. But he also um, he also lives in San Moritz, and uh, he, he likes his cigars. Uh, he's got a big green egg, uh, barbecue. Uh, <laughs> some of the photographs that he takes. Is that the uh, same as your barbecue? Like I've got the same barbecue, yeah. 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 And yeah. Um, he's, um, he's, he's just got a great eye. Yeah. His photographs yeah. are absolutely spectacular. And um, yeah, yeah, I really, uh, and, and he was living in London for a while on a, on a, a narrow boat, you know, but um, yeah, I just, I love following this guy because the value he gives to people just seeing what he's up to and where he's going. And, you know, so that would be my recommendation. And it's just very Ted, good. Ted Bouchou, which is G U S H U E. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting um, Instagram because there's a bit of everything, isn't there? Cars yeah. and destinations, architecture, art, everything. Um, lifestyle. Yep. Yeah, it's very cool. He's living the dream life, that guy. <laughs> well, I'm just hopeless with people's, like even people I know personally, I, I can barely remember what their Instagram handles are. Uh, and then you go to guys that I don't know personally and, um, you know, it's part of your feed, so it pops up and I'm just hopeless. But... Certainly, Type Seven is a probably something that I've recommended on this show as well. Oh, good. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. it's no surprise that that's basically him. What about you, Tom? Have you found anything yet? Yes, I have. Okay. Um, I hope I haven't recommended this before, but it's a guy by the name of Benjamin. Dot. I think it's Kosh. K O C H. Um, he's a motorsports engineer that's based in Switzerland, and he's designed and built his own watch um that he actually if you dm him uh he will he will make it for you and sell it to you um so it it is i'm not going to say the price because if he wanted people to know the price he would probably advertise it um but it is a 42 and a half mil case with a lug to lug of 47 mil and a height of 10 and a half mil um, and it's got an ETA 2834 Elaborate movement. The watch screens race car. I love this case. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a shame it's just too big for me. Otherwise, I would have bought one. It looks one. like it's uh, 3D printing or something. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I'm not, sh- uh, yeah, not sure how it's made, but even the case back looks like a race wheel. Yeah. It's got like a race wheel carved into it. I'm going to have to email him then and ask. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I can send you the details off oh, there. Okay. Just I won't say it. I won't no, say no, it on there. Very good. Uh, what about you, T. Sam? Okay, so um, for a couple of reasons, one being a a, a, a car connection. So uh, this young man is a co-founder of the Vaucluse Car Club, so up in Sydney. Um, and unfortunately, I wasn't in Sydney uh, the last time it was on. Um, but he's also, I think, the first time I came across Jack was at a C61 type of online event during COVID. Um, I could be wrong, but it was he, he was on there and he gave a little bit of a, um, uh, a chat about uh, old 
old photography cameras uh, that he's into. Um, and I, while he was talking, I, I, you know, visited his site and saw that he took some photos of the Sydney Opera House, which is somewhere that I, in my youth, I actually spent a little bit of time because I used to sing uh, in the Australian Opera there as a child. And um, I had these really clear memories of, of that. And one of his photos really spoke to me. So I reached out to him and said, I saw your photo. Can I, can I purchase one? So he printed one off for me. And the next time I was up in Sydney, I picked it up, but um, we got to chatting. He's obviously a watch guy. He's a photographer. Um, uh, th pretty sure he works in, um, in advertising slash slash marketing, you know, um, so he's got a great eye and great ideas. Uh, so his handle is Mr. Shepherdson, uh, Mr. No, no space, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D-S-O-N, Mr. Shepherdson. Mm. Uh, and really nice mix of, you know, it's a curated Instagram site, which, which I always love, um, but some interesting images there. And uh, as I said, he's involved in the Vaucluse uh, Car Club. So uh, every now and again, there'll be uh, a lot of photos around that that meet that meet up. Um, he's into architecture. Uh, there's a photo there of a, he's into Australia Square, which is a building, a Harry side of the building up in Sydney that my father worked in when he was an architect when he was alive. So lots of little connections there, and a lovely guy. Mm. Really nice photos. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I don't think I've shouted him out before, but it feels like I have, but only because it's so relevant, you know, the, a lot of the content there and I like what he uh, does some is... of that, um, poured, poured concrete brutalist. Uh, yeah. The brutalist stuff. Exactly. Is what I was talking yeah. to him about last actually, because, um, yeah. um, I, my first, when I was up till about four years old, uh, we lived in Surrey Hills in Sydney uh -huh. and there's a real brutalist, um, building there that's, uh, called the Reader's Digest building. And I'm sure somewhere in my makeup, in my imprint, that that was, that was uh, in my little brain there when I was pushing my tricycle along because I actually quite like brutalist architecture. Yeah, me too, me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's the real, it's that classic beauty in the ugly sort that's of right. stuff. That's, that's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's, there's so much of it in, uh, because, because of all of the, in Scotland, because of all of the, the migration and the new towns that they built to take all the people out of tenements. With public and, housing, yeah. All the public housing, it's all, yeah. it's all like that. So it's, it's everywhere and yeah, it, it somehow resonates now. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so funny. Public housing definitely has a, a track history of sort of brutalist design, whether that was by design or by, by some other measure like budget, I don't know. But uh, in Sydney, some of the much maligned architecture like Blues Point Tower, which is uh, just a, a huge block of apartments from the 60s, I think. Um, everyone hated it and probably still does. Um, some of the most amazing uh, views in Sydney are to be had from some public housing right next to the, uh, to the uh, uh, Harbour Bridge. Uh, that's very brutalist or almost cubist sort of design. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of it in Sydney and certainly in Melbourne as well. Like some of the, I believe every suburb in Melbourne has a public housing block. I think when they built public housing, they decided that we'll spread it around so that, you know, we don't end up with rich suburbs and poor suburbs. That Yeah, that's a good idea. I yeah, they call that. Um, yeah, I can't remember. But yeah. That is yeah. Really, you're, you're, and and I, I actually quite like some of these towers and most people I think would hate them. 
Uh, but there's again, there's some beauty there. There's something you know? charming, and, and I don't know if you know the the, 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 the one of the most famous ones for, for bad reasons in Italy is called uh, Scampia. You know, that's the one that's in. Do you know the TV show Gomorra about the the yes. gangs in um, in Naples? Yeah, that and and that's the, they filmed it on location. And, right. and, and the towers and, and Scampia and it's these three yeah. towers they've already that's a beautiful up. building yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. but um, conveniently designed really well for, 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 for drug dealers because <laughs> of all of the unique sort of um, corners and, and, and different uh, yeah. you know uh, escape routes but yeah I think I think from a, an aerial view it's, uh, it's stunning but yeah um, yeah it's a bit of a ghetto when you put so much together like that yeah yeah totally and actually I don't know his his name um, but um, recently, uh, an architect um, uh, died. He might have been a Brit, actually, um, who designed the Pompidou building in Paris. Uh-huh. Um, and also a very famous building in London, which is the Lloyd's, I think it's the Lloyd's Bank building. Yeah, uh, and, one. Yep. yeah and so it's kind of brutalist, but it's actually got, what he does is he takes all of the internals of a building, like all of the pipes and stuff and air conditioning units and all that sort of stuff, and he actually puts them on the outside of the building, leaving yeah. the inside of the building for space, usable yep. space, uh, but also, you know, taking all those internal guts, if you like, putting them on the outside, and then that becomes part of the design of the building. I see. Um, yeah. So he just passed away just recently, but I remember calling my mum straight away and going, that guy, you know, who designed the Pompidou Centre, he died, and and uh, she and my dad had taken me there when I was, again, when I was probably about 10 oh. years old, and I thought oh. it was a fascinating fascinating area it's got a really great um water feature out the front too that kids yeah. kind of play in and, and and engage with yeah um yeah very cool lovely well it's what pushing two hours yeah. from even as late as i came to the party yeah i think this is probably a good time to wrap it um from a podcast point of view thank you jamie thanks for reaching out to us um no, th- thank, thanks so much for for having me guys i hope it's not been too uh too too boring not at all. Absolutely not. Not for me. And and it's as I said, it's been great to actually, you know, talk to someone that we know very little about. Um, not that the guys like Anthony and Rob and, and Alex aren't very interesting, but it's great to sort of start from zero and talk it through with you yeah. um, during the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And I know who I'll come to now when I'm thinking of buying a Maserati. Oh, any, anytime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um... So Fifth Wrist is a website by the community for the community. Follow us on Instagram at fifthwrist.com. Sorry, at fifthwrist on Instagram. Find all of us on Instagram. Uh, Our handles will be in the show notes. Very good show notes from last one, Tom. Very well done. Thank you. I need to still get on to Alex's level with the links to the website. We've got a Slack community, which is good fun and where events are organized um, and banter's had over new watch releases and new watch purchases. Just send a message to um, either the Fifth Wrist account uh, or one of the hosts and they'll get you organized to be added into the Slack group. And a special shout out for the uh, the Perth Red Bar community. So obviously reach out to Jamie or to Rob at the very least. Thanks. And otherwise, stay on time. Driving time, stay on time. Fifth Wrist is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack.
Email us at contact at fifthris.com and join the movement.